Hey, it's me, Colin. Before we get into this week's knockback, I want to remind you that all things Colin's Last Stand, Fireside Chats, SideQuest, Knockback, and more, are fan-funded at patreon.com slash Stand. While your patronage isn't required, it is super helpful and allows CLS to continue producing content. Supporting CLS on Patreon also gets you perks depending on your level of patronage, like exclusive podcasts, week early access to every episode of Fireside Chats and Knockback, the ability to vote on show topics, and more. If you like what CLS does, please consider showing your support. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your continued kindness and generosity. Trust me, it's not lost on me. And now, it's time for Knockback. Enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. As always, I'm joined by perpetual high school student, Dagan Moriarty. <laughs> Hi, guys. You're going to stick with it. I'm, you know, I'm, happy, I'm sticking with it. I'm happy to hear that. I think pe- people it's people are demanding it. And, and I think that the expectation has been set now that we're <laughs> we're on season three, wave three of the shows we're recording. Uh, this is the first episode, whether it will go up first or not in this batch. This is the first of 10 new episodes we're recording. Um, I know that last time we were recording wave two here in Philadelphia, you said you would change it every wave, but I'm glad that you're going to stick with that. Okay. I have a lot of ideas, so maybe we could change it going forward, right. but let's see if sticking with it, let's see what the public perception of that is. Sure. Right? And keep your ideas to yourself. Now, Dagan, <laughs> it's uh, it's good to see you. Does me good to see you. I got a joke for you. Yeah. Okay. Hit me. I'm going to do a themed joke for every episode. Oh, all right. I'm not promising they're good jokes. Okay. That's fair. So, a piece of toast... A bowl of cereal and a hard-boiled egg walk into a bar. Okay. Bartender says, sorry, we don't serve breakfast here. I like that. You made that up? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think that's very impressive. <laughs> You've never heard that no. joke? No. All right. So we're off to a good start make it up. So you didn't make it up. Yes. Yes, I did. You could have just lied to my face. It's fine. I'm, I appreciate that you didn't. That's my... Well, we didn't say what episode we're doing yet. But that's true. That's You'll see how that ties in. Sure, shortly. sure, 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 sure. <laughs> uh, Dig, it's good to see you. It's good to be back. Uh, thank you so much out there for all of your support. Today's episode of Knockback is about the 1985 classic movie, The Breakfast Club, which is one of my favorite movies. I don't know how you, how what what esteem you hold it in. It'll probably be in my top ten. I would say. Wow, movies. yeah, that's that's huge. Yeah, what do you think? <sighs> I wasn't thinking about placing it in the top, but I would say it's probably my top fifty. Okay. For sure. Okay. Really like this movie. I like it even more now that we're doing the show and I looked into the film further as well. Right. Great, right. great movie. It, it is a great movie. We're excited to talk about it. When when I, you know, so for wave one of the shows we did, the first eight episodes, I chose those topics, I think. Wave two, you chose six of them. No, eight of them. Okay. And the audience chose two. Two, right. And in this wave, uh, I chose eight of them and the audience chose two. So then we'll bounce it back to you for four and so on and so forth. And Sweet. This was one that I was pondering for a while that i wanted to do because i like to do episodes about specific movies uh by the time this has gone up gone up rather we would have already done uh indiana jones for instance we did the empire strikes back all that kind of stuff so this one made sense to me because it's so emblematic of the 1980s which you and i are both obsessed with i think for different reasons as i was telling your wife before the breakfast club makes me nostalgic for a time that i didn't actually experience and i think that that's a really powerful you know i was born a year before this movie came out and I was actually born before. I was. I'm sorry. I was actually born after the movie takes place because there's a specific date the movie takes. That's place. correct. And so it's not a time that I ever experienced. Wow, I didn't think about it that way. But you then were... I long for it nonetheless. Very nice. Now, Dig. Before we get into things, I, I want to tell the audience I'm going to be a little more annoying about this moving forward than I was in the past. 
you know, obviously this show is supported on Patreon. You probably heard the bumper if you're not a Patreon supporter before this all started. We appreciate your support on Patreon. It's essential to getting the show uh, out, uh, to, to letting it grow. So if you can support us on Patreon at any level, a dollar a month, $2 a month, $5 a month, you get different perks at the $5 a month level. You get every episode of Knockback a week early, for instance, plus you get to vote on topics for the show. You get access to exclusives, etc. So please consider it not mandatory by any stretch of the imagination, but it really would be helpful. But continue to enjoy the show for free if that's what you'd like to do. The other thing that I think I need to be more emphatic about, Dagan, is, you know, if you guys listen to the show on SoundCloud, consider subscribing over at SoundCloud. If you listen to the show on iTunes, which I think most of you probably do, uh, consider leaving a review, a nice review. It, it just helps us algorithmically. It helps the show bubble up. Knockback is regularly the top retro gaming and, and entertainment podcast on iTunes, which we really appreciate. We'd it's like amazing. to stay there. Yeah. So if you guys just you know can help us out in that way, if you like the show, leave a review at Google Play, iTunes, wherever. I don't know if Stitcher and all those places have reviews, but it would, it would be very helpful and it helps us find a new audience. And so thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you for helping it grow. As Dagan and I were talking before we recorded today, started recording today, the show is growing and we see the numbers. It and is. It's really, really exciting for us. And so we appreciate that. I didn't think that was annoying at all, by the way. Thank you. Not a little annoyed. Well, I can talk about it for like four or five more minutes if you want. Maybe it'll get a little more annoying. <laughs> Maybe we should leave it at that. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Digging the breakfast club. Uh, I want to kind of get your memory of when it came out. And if you remember when it came out, if you remember that it was if it was important or not, just to give people a little bit of a background on it. This is a John Hughes movie. And John Hughes is a significant player in 80s Hollywood and early 90s Hollywood. And I, I he died, I think, in 1999, which is unfortunate. So he's been dead for almost 20 years. But. Wow. Consider this, Dagan. He either wrote, direct, he either wrote and or directed and or produced the following movies, and I think he, I'm pretty sure he wrote all of these and might have directed them, produced, etc. Depending on the one you're talking about, National Lampoon's Vacation, Sixteen Candles, European Vacation, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Some Kind of Wonderful, Christmas Vacation, Home Alone, Home Alone Two. Can you believe that? That's absolutely insane. In ten years, he did all of those. A couple of important films in there. Yeah, a couple just a of f- ones. A couple of ones I've heard of. Just a few. I mean, <laughs> from from my. I mean, in looking at this, I don't know if you disagree. I think that the like some kind of wonderful is pr- and maybe yeah, I, some kind of wonderful is probably the least important movie. And that and that's Isn't really that, insane. When that's you say ins- that. That's amazing, right? Because you have the, the 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 National Lampoon's movies, you have the Brat Pack movies, and then you have the Home Alone movies. Home Alone. I mean, so it's just so we're, we're talking about a filmmaker of great caliber. Unbelievable. But Dagan, what is your memory of this? This movie came out February 15th, 1985. So I was four months old. Wow. Do you rem- do you remember it coming out? Was this a movie that was relevant to your generation at the time? Because it became very relevant to your generation yeah, later on. Of course. Because it was, again, emblematic of that time and place for you guys. It, it represented that. Absolutely. But can you tell me a little bit about that? Do you remember it being a, 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 of any relevance to you? Let's see. I was 10 years old when this movie came out. So I always associate this film. At, I think it always gives me memories of the older kids that I knew and mostly the older kids on our block growing up that were of this age, high school age, when the movie came out. It always makes me think of them, those specific kids, which were basically the older brothers and sisters of my friends or my, you know, you know, people that I was friendly with on the block, not exactly dear friends, whoever. There was a lot of, we grew up with a lot of kids on the block, as you know. And also, I always tie this movie in with just, I think what the first thing I think of is the Brat Pack and the actors and actresses that play in the films, the Molly Ringwalds. 
and Emilio Estevez's and so forth. This movie is so... It's such a... It's because of the themes, obviously, you have such a classic and timeless film that I think resonates across generations. It doesn't really matter when you watch it, and it doesn't really matter that this is a very emblematic 80s film, mid-80s film, and feels very 80s, aesthetically, the clothing, the music, and so forth. And of course, you know, just that prototypical John Hughes feel that you get from the film. But for me, I always, I remember it being on TV a lot. And I think it was, but I think they were playing it on TV a lot, if I'm not mistaken, Later in the 80s and into the early 90s, they played it a lot on TV, and it was probably cut up and for commercials and sort of that model, that made-for-TV model of playing it on television. But that was that's my first resonance with the film. I mean, we have so much to say about it, but that's what, I, that's what it draws up for me immediately. And it makes me think of the girls, too. It makes me think of our sisters, Allie and Dana, too, because I know how much... And my wife, Helene, which is, by the way, this my is the wife. first... <laughs> my wife... <laughs> <laughs> you want to say what we're saying oh yeah that? we were just watching borat <laughs> like clips on youtube right before we started recording anyway sorry to, this sorry was to... the first and this is the third wave of of podcasts that we're doing for knockback and this was the first topic that i could say my wife helene was actually excited about nice so you maybe know, she'll listen to an episode that's, so that's she'll listen to it and she also helped me sort of brainstorm and sort of you know we were talking about the themes and what things meant and we we got pretty deep with discussing it actually her and i so that was kind of cool so what about for you? What about, I'm very interested in your generational sort of approach to this movie because you were, you were a baby. Yeah, I mean I, I, I mean, I wasn't even cognizant of this movie until, you hear it thrown around even in the 90s, but I don't, I don't think I even ever saw it until I went to Northeastern. So this was something that I wow. saw, yeah, this was something that I saw, people, I mean, it's not that old, but this is a nostalgic podcast. The Netflix that we envision today is Netflix with exclusive content and you, you get things digitally on your PlayStation or on your smart TV or whatever, or on your phone. But Netflix in the early, you know, actually in the late 90s and then through the late, you know, aughts was a mail by DVD or DVD by mail service. And in college, I, w- I had the three DVDs deal, which I think was like 10 or $11 a month. And I was broke at the time. So this was a thing that I really, you know, I was only buying weed, beer, <laughs> Burger King, you know, rolling papers and whatever, lighters. So I had like very, I had very... <laughs> To light the weed, of course. Of course. So I had this, I had a very limited amount of money and I was really obsessive. My ex-girlfriend actually used to make fun of me because I was obsessive with watching DVDs, getting them back in the mail and like engineering the shit out of Netflix DVDs coming. So I'd have one all the time, right? And there was this moment in 2004, 2005, 2006 where all I did was rent, or not all I did, but much of what I did was rent 80s movies. And I exhaustively watched 80s movies. Wow. That's including amazing. like really obscure stuff. Three okay. o'clock high and stuff like that. Like oh, really. Great movie. You know, like B and C tier teen movies. Because obviously we always think about Fast Times in 1982. We think about Ferris Bueller, which is 1986. All of these kinds of movies. But there's a lot, there's a lot in there. Sure. And The Breakfast Club was the seminal movie that I knew I needed to see at this point because. I'm a very, I mean, not surprisingly, because we do this show, I'm a very nostalgic person. I'm yeah. a very nostalgic person, and I'm deeply nostalgic for things that I didn't experience. And, which is weird, because that's not really the definition of nostalgia. That's it's so like, interesting. It's a phantom nostalgia. And so, when I saw it, 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 it's exactly what you said. It evoked in me a vision of the 80s, a vision of what I think being in the 80s was. And it was, a, it was, an, a, it was, ex, it was exceptional, and, and, and it stuck with me. And it's funny, because... We have some questions and comments, thoughts from the audience. In case you guys don't know, if you support Collins Last Stand on Patreon at the $2 level or higher, a couple of weeks before we record one of these waves, 
I let the audience know at that level and higher what the topics are going to be. And then you guys submit your your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, ideas, whatever. And we had like 75 entrants for the topics we're going to do. And we had quite a few for The Breakfast Club. And Carter Quinn says, fantastic film. And he talks about how John Hughes is a masterclass in 80s teen flicks, which is obvious. I read his kind of repertoire earlier. Also, the first film I felt uh, truly related to the characters, even though they were supposedly so different. And I agree, I agree with that as well. But the interesting thing here is Marcus Brown says... And it's more kind of to what you were saying. Breakfast Club has a spot in my heart. It's one of the biggest things in my childhood. I was only eight when I first saw it. Now, one million times later, I can repeat every word of the dialogue. It's in my top 10 films <laughs> of all time. So so Marcus and I share that as well, which I think is interesting. And a quick correction, PTI style late episode correction. You were 11 when Breakfast Club came out, not 10. I was 11. Was, it, oh, it came out in 85. Right. The story takes place in, in March 84. 84 but okay. the movie t- you could just let me have the year. No, you weren't going to let me have We're not, that. we're not going to be, we're not going to be conf- realistic about it. We're not going to confuse the audience with how old you are. I was anymore. 17 when it came oh, out. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> so where do we begin with this one, Dagan? I, I, I'm curious because you said Helene helped you kind of brainstorm this. Sure. Is it, is it most instructive to start the conversation about The Breakfast Club by talking about the plot or is it about the characters? This is a very character driven film. Absolutely. What do you think? I think talking about, I think the characters really are something that you have to talk about. I think that's essential. Yeah, I mean, these five... Ca- the, there's other characters in the film, but these five characters... It's just the character development in this movie uh, and the writing, you know? I think it's really important to talk about. So let's start there if, you, if you're sure. all right with that. Sure. So just, just loosely, before as we're describing these characters, The Breakfast Club is about one day, like an eight- or nine-hour period on a Saturday where there are a group of kids, five of them, that are sent to detention. And these are kind of disparate spirits. They're not... Two of them are kind of in the same circle, which is Molly Ringwald's character and Emilio Estevez's character. But these are all different characters, different people, different cliques representing the different cliques that I think were maybe prominent at the time and still somewhat prominent today, I'm sure, in social circles. And they're all played by actors of some repute. So... And I don't know how you feel about this because I was reading about specifically about Judd Nelson's character, John Bender. Okay. Bender is kind of the main character. I don't know. I don't. I think a lot of people look at Molly Ringwald as the main character, but I'm not so sure that that's true. Judd Nelson's John Bender is a kind of a tough guy. He's a burnout, unacademic, smokes weed, drinks, kind right. of a badass. You find out that he's you know really heavily abused at home and also kind of abused by faculty and stuff like that. But how do you feel about Bender's character? It's interesting reading about him. The most stuff that I could find when I was researching this episode was about him. Yeah, and that a lot of people find him the most annoying component of the movie. That's interesting. I mean, because he's, I think naturally that's how you would react to, first of all, you have to give him credit because that's a great, that's a great role to play. If you're having that, if your people are having that reaction to your character, because he is very abrasive and he's got that tough guy front and you find out, you know, as you said, as you already alluded to, you find out why because of his home life and, you know, the abusive nature of his parents, especially his father and just his background. You know, he even talks about how Christmas is in his house and stuff like that. You really get to see why and the kind of the layers are peeled off the onion as it goes on. But I think he's a great character and I could see that he is sort of the main he's sort of the main protagonist of the five that the story sort of works around because a lot of it is his reaction and his interaction with the other four students in detention. 
You know what the one thing that bothers me about it is that they refer to him, if I'm not mistaken, they refer to him as the criminal, right? That's right. his. Why not just say the juvenile delinquent or the bully? Right. The criminal thing, the criminal label was always weird to me. Yeah. I remember watching that the most recently when we were knew we were going to do the episode and I went back and watched it again. And that was the, one of the first things that struck me. Why is he the criminal? They're already la- it's the other characters are who they are in high school. They're almost saying they're almost labeling him as what he's gonna be, what he's predicted to be later, which is interesting, right? Right, which is really strange, actually. It is because they don't do that actually for the others. No, the so Dagan's referring to not only the way that they refer to themselves. I think at the end of the movie, when Anthony Michael Hall's character writes a letter to the principal and stuff, and that's kind of. The, the, the kind of the symbol at the end of the movie when Bender's in the, on the football field and puts his fist up. And they describe the characters as a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. So it, you're right. It's a very interesting point. The criminal moniker seems to be a future... Unless, he, unless he's already a criminal, but if he was a felon or something like that, he wouldn't be in school. So they're talking about presently the brain, the athlete, the basket case, and the princess, and then the criminal element for Bender. You're right. That's very strange. Very, very strange. So Judd Nelson was way older, I think, than everyone else when they think were filming so this. I think he was 23 or something like that when he was filming this. Wow. And I think that if you go back down, we'll talk about them in a little while. I think Anthony Michael Hall was like 15. So there was a there was a big spread here. And what's interesting in reading about this, and I don't know if you saw any of this, and I had heard about this in the past, is that he almost got thrown off the film. He was like a real method actor, and he would treat specifically Molly Ringwald like shit wow. off, off, off camera. That I didn't know. And apparently, John Hughes like wanted to fire him. And replace him because they'd already replaced, and we'll talk about it. They already replaced one of the other characters with uh, someone else because it wasn't working out. Oh, you we'll, got to tell we'll me about yeah, that. Yeah, we'll talk that about that know. when we get to him. But the cast, apparently, that was being abused by him were the ones that rallied to his cause because that was kind of his method to being in the role is like he's an asshole. And so he's got to stay that way for the duration of the filming. I could, can you wonder? I mean, I know you and I aren't actors, and this will come up again later in our conversation, but can you understand? Doesn't that kind of resonate with you? That you wouldn't you want if you feel like you wanted to give 110% on a performance, don't you think it would be hard as an untrained actor and, and myself as well, though, just looking at it from the outside? Don't you think that would be hard to go in and out of character when they say cut? Don't you think staying like a, the method approach always made sense to me as somebody who hasn't acted since in a place since high school? Sure. But you know what I mean? That Absolutely. makes sense no, to me. I think so. I, especially if it's if the character is somewhat antithetical to who you are. And I don't think Judd Nelson is. Although maybe typecast is that kind of role sometimes is not an asshole. So yeah, to stay right. in that and stay in that realm, especially because they, they filmed it so tight, it was filmed in under in under a month from Stern to, to Stem. Is that the, is that the saying? I think it is. There was a story about him trying out for the role. That's what it was, and he was on the casting call, and he had all the guys that were trying out for the role of Bender were in there, and he was for whatever reason he was like towards the end. He was towards the end of the line, towards the end of the day, and he came in. In that, basically, in the getup that you see in the movie, but also not only with the clothing, but with the attitude, supposedly. And he was like in there harassing everybody and acting like the guy he was going to be in the film to the point where the receptionist called security on him. And the guys came up. He said, Judd Nelson talks about the story. The guy, the two security guards came up in the elevator. They're sitting in like the vestibule waiting. Whoever was remaining himself in the security, you know, the receptionist, the, the elevator doors open. Here's the security guards. He's like, oh, oh, shit. You know, they call him. They're like, you know, Judd Nelson or whatever goes in. He, he escaped by the skin of his teeth because he got called at that same moment that the elevator doors open with the security guards. 
and you know the rest is history. Yeah, but I perfect. always thought that was funny. It's serendipitous, you know? you know, because we got we got that character for better or for worse. Because it was interesting that like he's he's very zero to sixty in the movie. He's very very agitated, very aggressive, and it is a some he is a somewhat unsettling character. It's almost uncomfortable watching him sometimes. But I think that's somewhat necessary to get to the deeper Absolutely. portion of the story, which is. You know, and, and and we'll get into the focus of the story and what it's really about. But I think it's 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 about their shared values as five kids and the shared values of basically. I mean, I, I think the movie's about hating your parents. I mean, I I, I and, and so and those timeless themes, right? Exactly. Doesn't matter. Has it? Well, we'll talk about it. has it changed? Sure. And right. yeah, and who knows? I mean, you'll have a little more insight into that than I do. You have kids, so I'm, I'm right. curious. You know, they're not quite that old yet, but they will be soon. Molly Ringwald obviously is the most famous actress from this era. She's certainly not the most famous actress on this list. I would say that that was. Maybe Amelia Westervelt, ultimately, but but who knows? I mean, maybe so. Yeah, because Molly Ringwald went away. Right, exactly. Essentially, yeah, she, she, yeah, she stopped acting. Um, she played Claire Standish, and she's kind of the rich, popular, pretty girl. And she, you know, you kind of figure out why they're in there, and and it's kind of, a lot of it's kind of telegraphed. She's in there because she skipped uh, school to go shop, so it's a very rich kind of metropolitan kind of reason why you would be be out of class and she's an interesting character because she there's a, a a bit of a love triangle between her bender and andy clark who's amelia westavez's character who we'll talk about in a little while but she's also interesting to me because of the hindsight of molly ringwald being very vocal about not really being into this movie and i think that that's i don't know if you read any of that stuff but she wrote a really seminal new yorker piece actually that i recommend people go read if they're interested about how, kind of her experiences with john hughes because she was looked at as John Hughes's muse. She was in a lot of John Hughes movies and John Hughes kind of wrote parts for her. Pretty in Pink was really kind of for her. She was cast in The Breakfast Club, I think, while Pretty in Pink was being filmed. So she already had that next film up and then, you know, so on and so forth after that. But the interesting thing about her, Dagan, is that she talks about, she talks about a few things and I think some of them are interesting and right and I think some of them are not. Considering the movie needs to be looked at through the lens of the time. One thing she writes about, which I think is interesting, is this, this, movie uses actually in like the first minute uses the word faggot and fag and it's used several times throughout the movie which is uncomfortable you know through the through a modern lens but certainly not so in the mid through the mid 80s lens and i can't speak for you and i've been honest about this i used to use the word fag until i probably went to college what's interesting is that i never really used it or i I, not really i didn't use it as a derogatory term for gay people no. It was like a way to insult someone. Yeah, didn't have the same didn't have the same meaning then. Right, exactly. So looking back, it's you know seeing that written on a locker, which is I think what the scene is when you first see it. It's an incredible thing to see, actually. You know, and she writes a little bit about that in that New Yorker piece. But the other thing she writes about, which I think is interesting, I'm curious about what you think of this is. There's an upskirt shot where Bender is underneath and like kind of like puts his head towards her private parts which is uncomfortable and a little weird. And there's kind of this insinuation that she may really be the target of like pretty severe sexual harassment throughout the entire movie, which is, you know, unlike the word, you know, fag, for instance, this is a thing where might have been looked down, you know, more upon at the time and now regardless of that. So what do you think of her character? And what do you think of the things she's kind of said and kind of how she's, I don't want to say she's disowned it, but she's been kind of harsh on John Hughes. That's uh, interesting that you say that yeah. because I watched a couple of documentaries about the film that were really, really wonderful. And she was definitely noticeably absent from those documentaries. So that, and I know she sort of shied away from the limelight as an actress and she has a musical career and everything like that. She's really into, but for me, 
Molly Ringwald is so important to these films because she feels like she really does feel like a lot of girls that I grew up with in junior high school and high school. She has that. She has it's it's interesting dichotomy dichotomy with her because she has a movie star resonance, but at the same time, she does feel like the girl next door in these films. And I think that speaks to not only her aesthetic and her appearance, but her acting ability. I think she's very understated. And I always love, I love her in every film from 16 Candles to Pretty in Pink to this film, everything she's done. She's such a key component of John Hughes's films. And I think you could see that she was definitely, as you said, his muse. I like her character and I the sexual the target of sexual harassment thing is interesting but that's only at the hands of Bender and he is very aggressive with her from the upskirt thing to grilling her about her virginity to being very you know using very coarse language with her he's very he's very mean-spirited he he chooses her specifically as a target and goes after her but I like I won't say Molly Ringwald is my favorite character in the film but she's probably my favorite actor in the film I just I've always, I always enjoyed her and um, I think she's a big component of at least I could speak for myself a big part of the component of the nostalgia of this movie and the other films. And I I really like her character because she is different than the other characters in that you see that sort of rich girl princess background as she's described. You could see it from the opening scene when she's dropped off by her dad. Her dad's actually apologizing to her. Like, don't worry. Like, don't worry about it. Just got to get through the day. And like, it's not your fault type of thing. And I think she, I think the dad blames it on the mom who they insinuates an alcoholic. Right. And they, uh, that very good point. And they actually insinuate also, they actually talk about that the wife, that the mom and dad are constantly fighting. Right. And that they use her as a pawn. Right. She's, they put, they triangulate and put her in the center of it. Right. So for me, that's Molly Ringwald's character. And you know, she's also, I think, I just think Molly Ringwald is very appealing. She has a very she has a very strong appeal, almost not quite to this degree, but almost an Audrey Hepburnish appeal. Mm. Interesting to me. Sure, a, a little different, but sort of that same, just sort of that same gravitas. Sure. What do you think about that character? Yeah, no, I think she's a necessary character because, you know, the the the, the emblematic, the symbolic thing that she does to me that shows that she's like a very up, upper class or rich girl princess in the eighties is she eats sushi when they're all eating lunch, which is like unheard of. Like, they don't even know what it is. Right. Like, They've what never, is it? And, you know, she's eating her California rolls or whatever and putting the soy sauce in. A, <laughs> she's got the whole setup. Which is the way someone would eat, you know, this is, we're, we're 20, 38 years later now. And she, no, 38, no, that's not true. 30, 34 years later. And uh, 33 years later. Math. Whew. Wow. Good math. But still, that's a long time. Yeah. And it's, wow. God, I hope it's not 38 years later. I'm really getting old. <laughs> And she, she's so she's like a necessary conduit. I actually think in a lot of ways she's the least interesting and least dynamic character. But I think that's kind of the flatness and the affect that she has in the movie is, I think, by design. And I'm not so sure, with all due respect, that Molly Ringwald's a, an exceptionally talented actor. I, I, I don't actually in, in terms of this list of people, I think she might be the least talented actress. That's, in, that's a that's an interesting perspective. And I don't mean that. I mean, that sounds inherently insulting. I guess it is inherently insulting, but I don't necessarily mean that as an insult when she's up against, you know, the Emilio, Emilio Estevez and the, the Ali Sheedy's of the world and stuff like that. But she's what, what's frustrating to me about her and what Molly, I think, writes about in her op-eds and has said in the past whenever she does talk about it is that through the, har- the sexual harassment and the and the fact that she's kind of 
along with uh, Brian Johnson, Anthony Michael Hall's character, who we'll get into in a minute, kind of a fish out of water in this situation, is she still ends up with Bender. Like, Bender gets her. And it's a very... I understand. I'm not. You know, everyone knows out there. I'm not one of these uh, so-called SJW types, and I hate that term. But you guys understand what I'm saying. But I can understand the frustration that like she's sexually harassed, maligned, and treated like shit, and then she ends up with Bender anyway, which is weird. When you think she would end up with Andy Clark, who, or maybe end up with no one since they're just at detention for a day. Right. But I see what you're saying. That typical homecoming queen, homecoming king. Right. Sort of dynamic that you would expect. And he clearly likes her. And we'll talk about Andy in a minute, but he there's a there's a particular scene where he invites her to a party, which is like so strange, like where one of the very few times another ancillary character you never meet is in it. And I always found that that really fascinating. And he's also super protective of her. He multiple times confronts Bender. He over, defends her. Yeah. But he doesn't end up with her, which I think is, is from a viewer's standpoint, is a little frustrating and a little weird considering who he does end up with. We'll get into that in a second. I agree with you on that. Yeah, for sure. Do you think it's digging too deep to say that maybe that's was it intentional that she's attracted to that because what she sees between her parents? Yeah. Well, she they're they're very well. Bender's very open about it when she when they're kind of getting together. He I think she gives him a diamond earring because he talks about the diamond earring she sure. got. That's during the Christmas scene that you mentioned when she he's like kind of screaming at her and he talks about how he got a carton of cigarettes for yeah. for Christmas and yeah. she got the diamond earrings or whatever. That's what they insinuate. And he says something along the lines of like, I'm, and I'm not quoting it verbatim, but that like, I'm the kind of guy that's going to piss the, your parents off. So, you know, and I think that was kind of the attraction. It almost makes you wonder like in, in Breakfast Club fan fiction, kind of what is John Hughes's vision? Do they stay together long or is it just like a flash in the pan kind of situation? I don't know. The next character that I want to talk about is Andy Clark, who's played by Emilio Estevez. He's a wrestler. He was supposed to originally be a football player. If you read about it, he's just not big enough to be a football player. He's not tall, so people didn't think it would be believable. They didn't buy it. Wrestlers are a little more squat, so he is more in that build or whatever. And he has kind of collegiate athletic op- uh, aspirations. You kind of find out that his dad, you don't really hear much about his mom. I don't know if his, he comes from a divorced household or what. They don't really say, I don't think. But mm, That's a good point. But the dad is like very is pressuring him a lot. And he's in there for the most serious ag- grievance out of all of them by a mile. And... They talk about it a little bit. He basically, you know, as a as a as a kind of a hazing situation or making fun of one of the nerds, whatever the case might be. He they rip the pants off of a nerd and like tape his ass cheeks together or whatever. It's you know kind of like sexual assault in a way, like kind of. And the people I, and what I was reading about it, that people are kind of talking about that in a way, like it's like basically molesting this kid, this poor kid who ends up being friends with another one of the characters, and you find out about that. He's popular and he's conflicted. And that's what I like about his character. I think he's probably maybe the most dynamic character is that he's totally conflicted. He feels really bad. There's an amazing scene towards the end of the movie where he reflects on what he did and about how embarrassed, you know, he talks, he, he reflects on his own relationship with his dad and how horrible it is for him and how it puts all this pressure on him. And then talks about how this kid that he did this to has to like kind of go home and disgrace himself in front of his family and what, and what that kid's dad must feel like to have to witness that. And so he shows, I think the most emotional depth and the most change, I think, throughout the movie. But uh, what do you think of uh, Absolutely. Andy Clark? I, mean, I think that's very character. well said, Kyle. I think you covered a lot of it with him. What struck me about his character is, is sort of what you already said. He's he's a jock, and he's the athlete. But he ha- at the same time, he has an empathy that we don't expect. And I say we don't expect that, I think, because in media, especially in the 80s, in fiction, 
the bully was always presented as that sort of meat-headed, callous, brainless athlete that thought of nothing else, that thought of nobody's feelings. He was just kind of a blowhard and a tough guy. And this guy is, has many more layers to him than that and much more depth and a lot more texture. And I think it, it does make him very interesting. And the thing with the dad is you could automatically get it from the very few transactions that we see. Is it one or two transactions that we see with the father? I think in the, well, you see him only in the beginning and then he picks him up at the end, but I don't think there's any There was no dad. So it's really that one thing yeah. that the dad is sort of that dad that's living vicariously through the kid. You know, like you're going to get the scholarship, you're going to be the athlete, you're going to get the full ride. You know, you sort of get that intonation that the dad is sort of riding him to do the things that he always wanted to do. And I think that's often the case, not just in fiction, but in real life. That's a thing, you know, and I think that sort of pressure could really crack a young person. And it's funny. To, it's it's not funny. It's actually really kind of neat to see. I think he is a very appealing character because you see that empathy. You see the way he defends that he defends Claire against Bender. And you see the way that he's sort of, you know, being the the hero for everybody and sort of speaking up for everybody. And really, I mean, really standing up to Bender, even physically. So... Yeah, they get into a physical altercation. They get into a phys- actual physical fight. So he's really an interesting character. And it's it was really interesting to see. It might be the first time I ever saw that typical prototypical jock character presented with such depth and that's what makes him a really striking character you know and it's also in Emilio Estevez's face and his acting it's very it's carried off very well you could and his posturing and sort of you know he's the athlete he's got the letter jacket or whatever he's got the get up he has the look but he doesn't really have the you quickly find out he doesn't really have the psychological makeup that you would expect and I like that I like breaking type like that. I think he, it makes him really a standout in pop culture and in this film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think he's he's the deepest character. We'll talk a little bit about who we might who we might favor the most, but yeah, I think he's he, he shows the most depth and the most meaning. I think in the movie, Anthony Michael Hall uh, plays Brian Johnson. Before I get into this, by the way, I want to read another question from the audience. Zach McPherson has a comment, actually. He says, perhaps Anthony Michael Hall deserves a knockback episode all on his own, but my question to both of you is, how did the characters he played across those huge films in the 80s impact on the children teens of the 80s? And as he says, as a 90s kid, I'm not sure we had teen actor who played so many key roles in so many key films, so I was wondering what that was like. And you can speak to a little bit about this, Dig, and Anthony Michael Hall um, is a ubiquitous character and, and actually continues to act and, and got work. Actually, one of his, my favorite roles of his is 1999, he played uh, Bill Gates in Pirates of Silicon Valley, which is like I love that movie. That's right. And but he's a he's a dynamic and interesting actor who also kind of was in you know the Brat Pack and in John Hughes films and in other films. I think he's in Saint Almost Fire, and maybe not though. But he plays Brian Johnson in in The Breakfast Club, and he's kind of a nerd, a student, kind kind of a what you would expect Anthony Michael Hall to play. Yeah, I think a little bit more than not. And he's picked on, and he kind of flies under the radar. You don't really know if he's like bullied or if he just. If he just has his, his niche, you know, it kind of reminds me and he's not, I'm, I wasn't quite this, that nerdy or alienated in high school, but it reminds me a little bit of me in the sense that I wasn't really picked on. I don't think I had any bullies. People made fun of me sometimes, but it wasn't like any of this like egregious shit that you hear about or read it, you know, see, but I was just ignored. Like I didn't, no one really cared about me, which was kind of nice, right? Like I, at least I didn't have to deal with 
people being, you know, I was kind of cool with people in different groups. And I think that kind of got me respected. I don't know if he's more that kind of character or if he's more of like a, just a nerd that was picked on. Yeah, a target. But he has the saddest story because what you end up finding about him is the reason he's in detention is because he brought a gun to school because he was going to kill himself. This is this is a really, from a modern lens, a really interesting juxtaposition about guns in schools, which we see today, you know, whether it's in Parkland, whether it was in Sandy Hook, whatever, of, of kids being mowed down by an aggressor. He brought the school to he brought the gun to school because he was going to turn it on himself and he wasn't going to do it because he was picked on. He was going to do it because he got an F in shop. So it, he's an interesting character because it's one of those it's one of those extreme solutions to a very teen problem. His character kind of resonates with me in a way where his parents, you know, not that we had parents like this, but just that his parents, you know, you feel for him. His parents expect the absolute best of him. He doesn't have a normal childhood because he's just obsessed with getting A's. He talks about how he took shop because he thought it was going to be an easy A and give him a break, but it ended up being the bane of his existence and he couldn't make this thing and he got a straight up F. And so what do you think of, of Brian Johnson, Anthony Michael Hall's character? I love everything you said about him so far. I think, yeah, he's the brain. And it is interesting because he was sort of typecast, but I do like it's typical what he for what he plays, what what the actor plays in, in the films. But in this particular film, it's a it's a great point. Is he the one that's sort of the target for bullies and the kind of the easy guy to pick on, or is he like the invisible guy that literally no one would even know if he showed up or not? That's an interesting point, and that makes you also think deeply about maybe some of those kids that you knew in high school. You know, not that I was Mr. Popular, but you know what I mean? You, we have those guys I could all, and girls that you could automatically think of, and it makes you think back. And you do see the brain from the light of all the pressure that he's getting at home for being the brain. And that, and also he takes, it's a flare gun that he takes to school, right? It's not actually a gun, right? It's a, is it actually a I don't flare gun? I don't remember that. I don't, I could be wrong. I could be be talking out of school, no pun intended, but I, I thought that was it, but maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. But just, it's, it's very sad. He's a sad character and a tragic character, not because of the emblematic interaction he has with Claire later on, which we'll get to, and the things that he says. The very real things that hit home, I think, for a lot of us. But also for the fact that you know what happened with his grade in shop and that he's coming from a place of having so much pressure put upon him that he can't just come to terms with the fact that he found something in school that he's not good at and be able to brush it off. You know, he's it feels it feels like the end of the world to him, literally, that he's contemplating suicide. Right. You know, and that's where that character leads me and also his not only the fact that he's meek but that he's polite and the kind sort of the kind-hearted part of him that plays off Bender especially in the first half of the film where he that guy's really coming from a mean-spirited place and especially before you know Bender's backstory and before you get a little more revealed about that character He's such a he. He's coming off like the antagonist of the film, and he's coming off as very extremely unlikable. So I like the juxtaposition between those two characters of like, like the blowhard who's like not scared of anything and fearless and just menacing almost, and this meek sort of runty kid who's kind-hearted and polite and sort of yes or no sir and afraid to talk out of out of turn and and that sort of thing. So. 
it's interesting not only with this character but it's this is a this is a i mean we'll get more into this but this film is such a master class in character development not only with the individual characters as they're painted but how they play off one another and that's just another he's just another example of that you know what you were saying really resonated with me because i was thinking about it that we were talking about the archetypes, and I have them written down here again, just to be just to be sure. The the brain, the athlete, the basket case, the princess, and the criminal, like we were talking about at the top of the show. But it's almost reductive, right? Because, and I think Anthony Michael Hall's character uh, encompasses this the most. It's not, you know, when we look when I look at the list here, it's it's not a brain. It's 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 the it's the agonizing brain, right? It's not the athlete. It's the conflicted athlete. It's not the princess. It's like the psychologically abused and manipulated princess. You know, it's not the criminal. It's it's the the forgotten criminal, the forgotten man, the guy who acts out because that's the way he was raised. So it's it, it it's it's almost John Hughes's maybe John Hughes's clever way of taking the archetypes that that still exist today. The athlete, I'm sure, is still the popular kid in school, and I'm sure that the the princess gets all the guy you know gets all the attention from the guys and all you know that kind of stuff. But it's it shows more more depth to them than that. That they, they, like you said about Emilio Estevez, he, he's conflicted. Yeah. And that, that alone makes him more dynamic. Absolutely. The final character is, I think, the most, is the strangest character. In fact, she doesn't talk for the first 30 minutes of the movie, but she's one of the main, the main leads. Uh, Ali Sheedy plays Allison Reynolds. And she's like an outcast. She's weird. There's this really iconic scene where she's, where they're eating lunch and she takes the pimento loaf, whatever, out of the sandwich, and, like throws it on the statue <laughs> and like takes her... Like sugar and coke and just like makes a sandwich out of it. It's disgusting actually to watch. And she's like almost the goth. Almost. She's maybe one of the characters aesthetically that maybe doesn't exist in the main in 2018 anymore. And I like that she's she's like almost mousy and strange and and you're almost most intrigued by her at least I am or I was and and because she says so little you ha- you kind of have to read into a lot and and what's interesting about it because we were talking about why is everyone there right why is everyone in detention and we talked about how Andrew you know taped the, the guys butt together and Bender pulled a fire alarm I don't think we mentioned that but that's why he's there that day that's right and he's there every weekend it sounds like and Claire <laughs> you know skipped to go shopping but Allison's there because she wanted to be there she has no reason to be there and that's like the funny thing about it she has no reason to be there so what do you what do you make of Allison Reynolds, Ali Sheedy's character? I love what you said about the fact that this is a type that doesn't exist anymore because I saw Ali Sheedy talking about, first of all, she's a wonderful actress, and I saw her talking about playing this role. And what she was looking at back then, and this resonates with me because I'm older, that this is sort of, by today's standards, I would say not even by today, by, by the mid-90s, this probably would have been the quote-unquote goth or emo chick, or you could at least paint it as like the artsy type. You said mousy, which is a perfect description. Sort of that artsy, a little bit, you know, creative, sort of introverted and shy, not really prone to talk or dialogue or interacting, had maybe a a couple of friends. What she was looking at, what Ali Sheedy was looking at for the role was, and I remember these girls in school, although they might have been a little older than me, sort of like, if you could picture the pale, very pale-skinned, pre-goth, prone to like poetry readings, the Cure um, of the Smiths, the Cure of the Smith, exactly, right. Sort of an early, what we called them back then, the Cure and the Smiths is a perfect description. Alternative chicks, right? Alternative girls, right? And boys too. They're right, right. guys too. She's sort of that mid '80s version of that, 
And it feels sort of it feels sort of the same. They they label her as the basket case. So basically what it comes down to is somebody who's craving attention. You know, and I don't know if I'm always really comfortable with sometimes people don't want to fit into a box and sometimes, you know, especially as teenagers, we've been there. You don't want to assimilate. You you want to sort of do your own thing. You want to experiment. You want to be your own person. And I think a lot of that stuff with, you know, dyeing your hair and crazy makeup or listening to certain music, I think that's a, just a means of expression. I don't know if that's always a means of wanting to get attention. I don't know if I'm comfortable saying that because sometimes kids just want to do their own thing and paint, you know, paint their own picture and color themselves a certain way. Right. But in her case, and as, you know, oftentimes the case, she was someone who wasn't getting the attention at home. As she says, she was ignored at home. What did, what did your parents do to you? They ignore me. You know, it's heavy. It, it is. It's heavy, especially it, as a parent, because it really makes you think, like, really get introspective. Other things, other other works of fiction have struck me this way, but this is a big one. And I think the character is fascinating for that. You know, I think she's, and, and she's, she, as you said, there's no, she doesn't talk until well into the film she doesn't speak or really have much interaction with a a lot of the characters and the way she plays it is so is so it it just paints the picture of characters like that or people like that in our lives that we knew especially then especially in grade school and high school so i think that's i think she's a great one to round off the cast and her interactions with everybody and that she's she's a big one with the people's the other characters reactions to her which is what she wants. Right. And she gets it. Right. They don't really know what to make of her. No. And and you're absolutely right. She's a, she's an experimental character that I think shows us a little bit of a, a mirror image of the not necessarily what we were trying to do, but what the types of things that we were trying to do when we were, when we were discovering ourselves. I had a mohawk in high school for a while. I had I remember blonde that. hair. You did too for a little while in yes. high school. Constantly. I I mean, I, I used to paint my nails black for a couple of years. And I, I liked doing that because, and I even like experiment a little bit with like, you know, like, like eyeliner and stuff. I liked the look of being clean cut. I mean, the thing I was going for was like clean cut button downs, nice sh- shirt, you know, nice shirt, nice pants, nice shoes, painted nails. Right. Right. Like, like weird, weird. Like, so I get it. But you had an ethos. You had an idea. And right. that's a typical thing. That's a, that's a great point, Kyle. And I think that's something that's not discussed much is like, when you're going through those things in high school, as you just said you were going through, you always have that vision in your mind's eye of what you want it to be. There's always some sort of art direction behind the scenes right, of right. what you're going for. Right. And, you know, something that you're trying to emulate, someone or something or a, a, a hybrid of those things that you're trying to emulate. And that's a great, I love that. That's a really, that's a really great way of saying it. Yeah. Like there was no, when people would ask me why, I even painted my nails in college and people would ask me, why do you do that? I'm like, I don't, it's, it's not what you expect me to do. Right. I don't look like someone that would paint my nails. You're trying things. You know, and I liked almost, it was almost, it's a little weird. This is a little bit of a weird, it's not a weird admission, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a weird thing to talk about where I liked playing with people's, and maybe it's similar to Ali Sheedy's character, where I liked playing with people's expectations of, you know, of the very basic things that you can observe about a person and then make assumptions about them. Mm-hmm. Like, is Colin gay because he paints his nails? I want you to think that. Because I don't care if you think I'm gay. You know, it's the same thing when I was in my band in high school and in college with guys I went to high school with that we were, we, we would like, we loved the camaraderie and the brotherhood and would take these like crazy pictures of all of us like together, like almost too close because it would set these weird, like it would set people talking about like, are these guys like, 
Yeah, you define coupling up or something like I don't. And it's like I don't. My whole thing was like I don't care if you think that. I think it's funny for right. you to think Who that. Who cares what you think? If you think I'm gay, that doesn't insult or offend me. I'm really just being myself. We're just being ourselves. And so I love that. I respect that. That you know, Ali Sheedy's character in a lot of ways is is maybe the least consequential, but also the linchpin of everything. Bender really is the the cornerstone, but. In, in a lot of ways, but she she kind of grounds and centers the conversation around like this actually for as crazy as these guys seem in a lot of ways. Actually, she's kind of nuts. And but is she and is she just playing with your expectations? Of there her? you go. Exactly. So those are the five main characters, but I'd be loath digging not to talk about the two other characters. What's interesting about this is that there are only seven characters in the movie other than the parents that you see a little bit. One of whom is played by John Hughes. I think Anthony Michael's Hall, Michael Hall's dad is John Hughes. Oh, I don't know if I realized that. That other than that, there are only two other characters okay. in the entire movie. The first one is play, play, played by Paul Gleason, who is assistant principal Vernon, and he's been you know he you, you learn a little bit about him in exposition. He's he's teaching for twenty two years. He makes thirty one thousand dollars a year, which is a huge living in nineteen eighty four nineteen eighty five. And assistant principal Vernon is, I don't know. I'm of two minds with him. Okay, part of me thinks that he's wildly abusive. And part of me feels like he, and I think he is wildly abusive, by the way. I don't, I don't think there's any dispute by that with the way he treats Bender. There's, oh, a, there's a scene with him and Bender that's nuts. It's pretty It's pretty uncomfortable. It's hard to watch. It is. I agree. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But part of me also feels like he's just fucking tired of being treated like this by people that don't understand what it is to be an adult. And you kind of, there's almost a sympathetic slant to him, even though I think that there's probably not supposed to be. I don't think, I don't think John Hughes wrote this character to be like, don't you sympathize with the, with the 40-year-old man? You know, but no, but I, I kind of do. Okay. And I, and I, and I, and I don't in every situation, I think he's a, like a, he's a, he's, 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 he's an asshole. He's, he's mean spirited. He doesn't want to be there either. He's cocky, but at the same time, and it's a specifically with, with a scene with him and Carl Reed, who's the janitor who we'll talk about in a moment as well, where they're drinking beers and they're talking to each other. A lot happens in this movie. It does and it does it really th- does but where they're being like he like he says to him like that you you've changed the kids haven't changed and it's almost like a, you're almost seeing like an encapsulation a microcosm of a midlife crisis and you can't help but feel for that because is this guy really that out of control well it indicates maybe that he maybe he is but at the same time i just for the first time when i was watching it recently in preparation for this i had like a, a bit of a sympathy for him that's it i, I want to hear more about that that's an interesting really interesting take on him not not exactly the same. Didn't has the character doesn't strike me the same way as that. Yeah, well, tell that. me about, about a little bit about how how he strikes you. You know what's what really occurred to me as I thought about putting my different takes together on this for this episode is that it's so interesting that he's presented as an assistant principal. I think that has a lot of meaning behind it, or it could have a lot of potential meaning behind it. A, the fact that he's still ambitious he's not at the top of the food chain yet could also speak to the fact of the shit that he's getting from up above possible shit that he's getting from up above and the pressure that he's getting as an assistant principal and i know typically from from having people in our lives that we love that we know that are in administration public school administration assistant principal is a tough job and oftentimes there's more than one in a high school, but that's a tough, and they're usually relegated to certain grades, you know, being in charge of, in quotes, certain grades. But that's a tough job that comes with a lot of pressure. And I think it's there's some meaning behind that he's not the principal of the school, which is also a hard job, but you're also at the top of the food chain. So 
it is there as much grief is there as much anxiety is there as much you know inner turmoil whatever you're dealing with on the assistant principal level which i think at at the end of the day not to read too much into the his his job description but the assistant principal is the guy with his feet on the ground he's the guy in the trenches it's not the principal the principal is sort of the overlord of everything the assistant principal is in the trenches he's in the lunchroom he's breaking up the fights he's dealing with the stuff on the ground daily minute by minute right so i think that as i was looking into his character who i think is pretty despicable on the surface you know all the way down to actually physically threatening a student you know and challenging him to a fist fight i mean it's even like as you were saying it's it's uncomfortable yeah that scene is hard it's harsh and it's hard to watch mm-hmm. you're absolutely right about that and i th- but also i think with this particular character it's so funny because i remember watching him as a young person, as you pointed out, I believe I was 11. Yep, 11. Yep. But I don't even know if I saw it that early. So let's say I was, I saw it later. Let's say I was 14. Right, right, right. 13, 14. And just finding him so, being so sympathetic to Bender. First of all, it makes you sympathetic to Bender, who's pretty, pretty brazen, callous, and unlikable up to this point, which is interesting. But also, as a 14 year old despising this assistant principal character and now as an adult feeling the same exact way you know now i'm not you're probably your typical 44 year old i'm pretty in touch pretty in touch with my inner child sure and maybe my outer child as sure, well. sure sure there may or may not be some peter pan syndrome going on over here we'll that, save that for another episode we'll do a, we'll do a whole episode on that <laughs> but it's funny how he strikes me on both sides of adulthood the same exact way you know still very very unlikable He's so he's so hostile and so pent up and so aggressive that you know that it's got to be coming from someplace. There's a reason this guy's acting this way. But it doesn't even matter because just the way he treats the kids is so untenable. It's so it's unacceptable. You know, I always it's so funny though on this side of it, you know, on this side of being the 14-year-old on, on the 44-year-old side. I think of it as a parent like, oh my God, like if the, I would kill this guy if he did this to my kid and I found out about it. Like I would literally murder this dude. Yeah, he has a really, he, that character, it speaks to the portrayal of the character and how brilliant it is. He, he really makes me, get gets me enraged actually. Interesting. Yeah, I think my position might be a little more devil's advocate-ish because you're totally right. Yeah, he is me. despicable in a lot of ways. But I, I, I posit this, right? If you look at the sequence of the movie, not knowing anything about him before, right? He isn't really doing anything wrong until they start in, specifically until Bender starts in with him. And you realize that they have a history with each other. He makes fun of his, he makes, it's a famous line about Barry Manilow's wardrobe or whatever, right? And then he just sits in his office and then they close the door. And then for some unknown reason, they all lie on behalf of Bender, which is what, which is why the movie kind of happens. I don't really understand what they had. Like, why didn't someone just say like Bender closed the door? You know, like, and, and be over with it. So what I'm saying is that... Interesting. It's... Should a should an administrator be threatening, physically threatening in a closet, in a janitor's closet, telling the kid to hit him so that he can beat the shit out of him, like, have a reason to go at him, and talks about how no one's going to believe anything you say, and it's an incredible scene. It really is. It's really dark, and I'm not defending what Paul Gleason's character, Assistant Principal Vernon, does to, to Bender in the movie. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that Bender plays a major role 
in this guy going overboard. Yeah, he antagonizes the shit out of him. And and clearly it's been going on forever. Remember that there's a scene before that. He ends up in the closet because he gets removed from from the library for a little while. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, it, like, you know, Bender tries to escape. Bender pulls the screw out of the door. Bender runs through the halls yelling and screaming and goes into the, into the gym to play basketball. Bender, this is all before principal, Vice Principal Vernon goes in on him. Again, I'm not saying that that's the right solution. I'm not saying any of that's the right solution. What I'm saying is that I think it's a little more gray than simply looking at Assistant Principal Vernon as just the bad guy and Bender as just the abused child. Like Bender's clearly acting out. Bender clearly has problems. Bender's clearly abused. He has the cigarette burn or the cigar burn on his arm, for instance, which is a poignant scene as well about the abuse he withstands because Andy Clark says to him that he doesn't believe him when he talks about the things that are happening to him, which is a really poignant and moving moment. So I... I, I think you're right. He is a despicable character. But there's more to it than that. And I think that I didn't really realize that until I watched it recently. And I've seen it many times. But when I watched it recently, I kind of walked away with that where I'm like, this. there's a part of me, a small part of me that feels for him. Because clearly, he is utterly disrespected. And that must be really hard to deal with. And I'm not saying, he, again, he's he's uh, exerting that, that negative energy in a proper way. But... How would you feel if this 16-year-old kid was embarrassing you over and over and over in front of pretty much what it is? You're right about that. To the point where they have a back and forth where he just racks up something like six weeks worth of detentions in the conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. At least. (laughs) You you know, do you threaten to beat the kid up and stuff like that? No. Where does it say? But but what like, uh, you know... I had nothing any with one percent as much as he's disrespected. You know, Bender disrespects him in the in the in the in the uh, movie. But you know, I had some interactions with teachers that I regret. You know, I wasn't even really a bad kid in high school. Yeah, you know, and middle school, I, I wasn't a bad kid at all. No, definitely but, not. But I had some I had some teachers I didn't like, and some teachers I had some rough relationships with, and some teachers I said some shit to. Yeah, and you know what, like. They were wrong in the way they treated me, and I was wrong in the way I treated them. Right. And it was a war of escalation. I wasn't going to win it. You know, I got thrown out of a few class, like not permanently, but you know, you you know, you probably yeah. had it too, where you get thrown out of class. Yeah, sure. It happens to everyone once, I think. But I remember those, and I remember the teachers, and I remember this animosity I had for them. And then you know what? I I think back. You know, you mentioned the administration, like our our brother in law is a principal at a school. Right. Your wife's a teacher. Both yeah. of our sisters are teachers. Yep. Mom taught in college. We have cousins that are teachers, like Jamie. And you make it thinking, I'm like, I would bust someone's fucking face open if they talked to my sisters the way, you know, Bender spoke to. It's a great point. It's a really good point. You know? It comes from both ends. And like you're saying, just your experiences in high school with certain teachers, there is a lot of high school is tough. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of heat. You know, you could see the teachers losing patience. You know, you could see the kids, kids are tired. Kids are working hard. Kids are tired. Kids, kids are going through, you know, the hormonal thing. You could talk, talk a lot about, about that. Did you have, what about your experiences with administration? Any no, I, I never, with- I was never sent to a principal, the principal's office. And I, I, I had, you know, I had friendly interactions with, I don't even want to use their names, but the two vice principals at Bellport were both nice guys. One of them became the mayor of Patrick, I think. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So they were, they were. I had good, you know, kind interactions with them. A lot of it was because, you know, 
I was the youngest of four, and the Moriarty name was not that we were like renowned, but people knew who I was because there was three others that had gone through the system, and Came the teachers ahead. obviously stayed for. And it seemed like Allie being the most recent, there were some people that really loved Allie, but you and Dana would come up too. Yeah, you know, Mr. I had Mr. Scott, who we all had. Yes, I had you know a lot of you know a lot of teachers like that that were bouncing around. So it was. It, I think my interactions with the was were somewhat painted by that as well. But I also never went overboard. I remember the worst things I ever did were outside of school and were things that I deeply regretted mostly because they weren't that bad, but mostly because it was just me trying to be cool by going along with someone else and not even really participating. Got my ass kicked in high school bad, you know, because of, because of that. Like I got the shit beat out of me in high school. I was going to die. I mean, whether or not that's true and I have no idea. I don't know if I know about this story. Yeah. Just weird. You know, like uh, the, 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 the literal story of that is we were, going to go see a movie. It was like me and these kids that I was there hanging out with. So there's still some nice guys. A couple of them are cops now, which is funny as hell. Oh, that's... And, and uh, it was just this stuff where this guy had beef with this other guy from another school because he was dating this girl. That he, I don't even remember what it was. Kid stuff. And, yeah, and it was just like we were 16 or 17 going along in like this caravan of three or four cars. We had our girlfriends with us and like all this shit. And literally it was like you're so dumb when you're 16 or 17 where it's like let's go to the movies there's a movie at 9 40 or whatever on the way i'm gonna meet we i talked to this kid i'm gonna meet up we're gonna you know he and i are gonna fight <laughs> so we're all we were all just gonna like be there and watch and then just go right right, right. and it's like insane when you think about it. it's totally insane when you you're think not about it. you're not thinking at all when you're that age. no and i really wasn't gonna not. participate in the fight i'm not a fighter i was just right. like i want i like these guys they, they they think i'm cool i want to go to the movies with them i'm with my girlfriend and whatever what ends up happening we roll up we get jumped you know by 12 or 15 where, people. Where were you guys? In like one of the developments. Oh, like it, in how, house, housing, you know, where houses are. Right, exactly. It, like it, was, it, was, it was Medford. And it was, and I, I'll never, like, I was like, it was, it, it happened so suddenly where I was like, this isn't what I, like, I don't want to interact with this at all. Yeah. I didn't realize That's that horrifying. the beef between these two guys were so serious. Yeah. These guys... These guys were older than us, and they had bats. Oh wow! And like all sorts of shit. They destroyed my friend Lewis's Jetta, like seven thousand dollars worth of damage. Wow! They beat the shit out of me. They beat the shit out of a bunch of other guys. What? Yeah, like it was it was insane. What grade were you in? Twelve. Oh my god! Are you serious? Yeah. Why don't I remember this? Yeah, that's insane. And like, yeah, that's that's frightening. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a scary. Experience. And you, you know, I don't think I've ever talked about that publicly, but you, you. Look at those kinds of situations. I wasn't, I didn't like, in a way, it's like I can't really absolve myself of my interaction in this situation because I didn't think it all the way through. I wasn't going to be a participant. I see what you're saying. You know, but Absolutely. I went along with it because I was a dumb, stupid <laughs> kid, you know, and I paid the price. Right. Like bad. And I could have gotten killed. Like these guys were like 20, 21, 22 years old. I mean, there was no joke. And I think they might have went easy on me because of that. Because I wow. was like 16. Wow. You know? Holy cow, dude. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck's going on here. Like, I thought that these guys had beef and they had agreed to kind of sort out their business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. But no. What do you? What else would you be thinking? I don't even know how I got on that tangent. But it it's emblematic of these things that we don't think about in 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 high school and, and, and the gradients of high school and how I look back at that and I cringe. I'm like, how the fuck did that happen to me? You know, back in, that was more than a, half my lifetime ago. But it's also a learning experience. And what seems to be with Bender and is that he doesn't learn anything. There are no consequences for him. That was a learning experience for me. 
I considered myself a good kid and I considered myself, a, I did well in school. I was respectful to, you know, my parents and all those kinds of things. But, you know, coming home and, and having to tell dad that as I'm like fucked up. Yeah, that's, a, that's is, is like not an easy and having to explain that, like, I didn't do anything. Right. But I understand how this looks. Right. You, you know, <laughs> like you weren't smart about it, but at that age, you're not thinking like that. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's how we got on that conversation. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, that's high school. Yep. It's a high school experience. Yep. This is a high school movie. Absolutely. Bad news, man. Oof. The last character that's worth talking about, I think, and the only other character in the movie is uh, is Carl Reed, who's the janitor. He's played by John Capolos. The reason I wanted to talk about this character is not only because he adds an interesting layer to the story. He was a student. You don't realize that unless you look at the movie very carefully, but he was a student there. And there's an interesting scene with him, like I said earlier, with Paul Gleason's character, where they're kind of talking back and forth about the situation with the kids and all this kind of stuff. But actually, it's behind-the-scenes stuff that's most interesting with him for two reasons. So the first one is that there's this story about how he told a joke on set to Emilio Estevez about Martin Sheen, not knowing that he was his dad. Oh, get the hell out of here because of the last name. Yeah. Oh, my God. And it wasn't even like a bad scene. It was like something like they were getting worked up about something. And I think John Capolos was in Apocalypse Now. Famously, Martin Sheen had a heart attack on the set of the right, movie. That's right. And just one of the many things that fucked that movie up in production. <laughs> God, it was a disaster. <laughs> and uh, he told a joke about how he's like, be careful because you're going to have a heart attack like Martin Sheen on the set. And apparently Emilio Estevez was fucking livid oh about it. God. And like they weren't on talking terms. And I, I I read different things. Some some people say that Emilio Estevez never forgave this him guy for, for it. Some people said that he did later on. The story that I saw with him was that John Capolos was later on uh, The West Wing, which Martin Sheen was starring in. Oh, right. And he told him the story about it and Martin Sheen thought it was like funny. But that's an interesting kind of aside. The other thing is that the original janitor... I love that story. ...was Rick Moranis. Oh, wow. And Rick Moranis was just fresh off of Ghostbusters and was cast in this role. You know, there's kind of an Illinois love with John Hughes. Obviously, most of his movies, I think, take place in Illinois from yeah. Home Alone to this movie, etc. But also with some of the guys that were involved in that comedy troupe. That kind of, not, not a troupe, but a, that comedy group. A lot of those guys hailed from Illinois. And I think, I think Rick Moranis was kind of associated with the movie maybe for something like that but he wanted to play the janitor apparently as a russian and he wanted oh. to play it as a, co a comedic role and like was like totally ablibing and stuff and they're like you gotta go really yeah like and they just, just wanted to do whatever the hell he yeah, wanted to yeah do. and they fired him oh and they fired him yeah he didn't even want wow he's supposed to be a difficult dude actually that's interesting they well, all are know. actually all of those the ghostbusters dudes are supposed to be pretty really cool. i think so that's why ghostbusters 3 never fucking happened <laughs> How could it never happen right so those are all of this, the characters. Yeah. I don't think we have to go too into Carl Reed. I don't think he's that deep of a character. He's more of a, a necessary conduit for information than kind of his own. You find out a little bit about the, the you know, assistant principal. Um, what's his last name? Vernon. Vernon through him. Right. Give, gives, it a little, gives him a little more color. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So now that we have the characters in place, Let's talk a little bit about the movie itself, and we can talk a little bit of some of our favorite scenes and what our takeaways are. First, from a production awesome. standpoint, the movie took the the movie was the movie takes place March twenty fourth, nineteen eighty four, and you're often reminded in social media people are like it's Breakfast Club Day or whatever they say with the hashtags or whatever, but it's March twenty fourth, nineteen eighty four. It was shot in March and April nineteen eighty four over thirty two days, and it was it was filmed in Maine North High School, 
which is in Illinois, and it was based kind of loosely on Hughes's high school years in Illinois. The disappointing thing I didn't know before I started doing deep research for this episode, because I was like, that library specifically, right? I was like, this library is so modern for that time. They must have found the coolest school to film it at or whatever. It's really lavish. It's not a real library. It's it's a set that was built in the gym of the high school oh. for the movie. Apparently, it was oppressively hot in there. People were like passing out and like falling asleep and shit Holy while they were moly. filming. Which is really interesting. You're right. That library is really striking. Like, why didn't my high school library look? It like was amazing. This? Like, because I, I and I was a little disappointed that it wasn't a real library because I thought that they found like the the a library or a school that was built in the early 80s that was very right. modern for the very time. Very affluent. Right. Exactly. School district. Whatever. Exactly. And yeah. so, oh, that's funny. so that's a little piece uh, of information there. The movie was originally going to be called The Lunch Bunch, and the breakfast <laughs> and the Breakfast Club name was given to it. Uh, based on, I think John Hughes's friend had a detention thing in his high school that they referred to as the Breakfast Club. So that's where that name came from. Oh, thank from. God they changed it. Yeah, the lunch, the lunch bunch. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> the screenplay was written in two days in July of 1982. It's amazing. And what's interesting about this kind of situation is that there are two really interesting deleted scenes in the movie. And I don't know if you saw anything about this. And actually, one of them is something Molly Ringwald talks about because she's apparently responsible for getting one of them removed. Oh, tell me about There's this. There's a scene of Pr- Vice Principal Vernon spying on a topless teacher swimming in the pool of the high school. And there was another scene, I guess a parallel scene, where women are doing aerobics in the gym and he's spying on them. Wow. And they deleted that, which kind of changes the complexion of his character because, to your point earlier, he would be truly and utterly and irrevocably despicable if they also kept those in. They had, they so they also almost softened them up a little bit yeah, by removing those. That might have been the intention. There's also, and we'll, I want to talk about the pot scene because it's so outrageous, <laughs> but there's a scene where Allison is, like a lot of the, if you pay close attention to the film, you'll realize that Allison is not really in the scenes when, a lot of the scenes when they're smoking because she was off doing something else, dancing and like having, like in the AV room by herself and they cut it all out. So there's like a continuity error there basically. Oh, that's weird. So these kids gather. We've we've established the cast. Mm-hmm. We've established why they're all in detention. We've established the the kind of adult leads. And now, where do we go from here? I mean, w- I, I'm curious what scenes that we might not have talked about have stood out to you. I you, have, you have one. Any. I have one favorite scene. If you if if you don't mind me talking. No, about please, it. please do. This this scene we we did touch on a little bit already, but this scene for me especially in watching again was like this is one of the greatest I know I, I relegate this movie to maybe this I might be too hard on it this movie might be in my top 25 films certainly in my top 50 but definitely I'm such a movie buff across so many different things and I, I include animation in there so this might slip down a little lower but I do love this movie and but this scene is one of my all-time favorite scenes because this is a great scene just just a great scene for character and character development and that's the lunch scene and this scene is presented to tell you so much about the characters. It sh- basically shows you, we talked about it a little bit already with Claire and her sushi, but each what each character brings for lunch, but not only what, on what the characters have for lunch, but everybody's reaction to each lunch. It's so It paints a picture of the character so clearly. So Claire brings her sushi, and she's got her, her whole setup. She's got like the whole, for lack of a better term, like her little bento box, like you were yeah, saying, and exactly her little it, platform, yeah. and the mat, and the uh, little soy sauce bottle, and the whole thing, right? She's got her ginger and her wasabi and the whole thing. And they're, you know, it's so funny because here's the rich girl with this expensive lunch, 
exotic lunch and here's the poor kid who doesn't even know what that is you know in bender and then you see the wrestler and he's got his giant shopping bag of lunch and i love this scene because it's it's such a comedic scene with no words and just people's reaction to it he puts a giant he takes his giant bag of lunch out and he's reaching in and he's got sandwiches and potato chips and a box of cookies and fruit and then he stops and everyone's just kind of looking at him in awe he's got all this food in front of him and then he goes in and he's and he goes and he goes into the bag and gets like another five items out of the bag and they're just dumbfounded. Everybody's just looking at him like he's he's gonna eat all that, you know? And then which you had brought up a little bit too already, the basket case character, Hat Allison, takes out her bread and her pixie sticks and pours like the sugar or whatever it is, the the fun dip or whatever on the and then I don't know if it's cereal or potato chips. I couldn't figure it out. I think it's cereal. I think it's like Captain she, Crunch or something like that. Right. That's what it looks like, like a sugar cereal, right. right? You would think. Like Captain Crunch is a perfect description. And she mashes it and eats mashes the bread down, take a gigantic bite of it as everybody watches, and she's kind of relishing everybody looking at her like she's a weirdo. You know? And then I don't think Bender brings lunch. No, he doesn't. He has no lunch. And then Brian's got like the all American, like he's got the PB and J with the crusts cut off and the milk, like the very like the thermos of soup, the, the thermos of soup, yeah. and like the nerdy kid lunch, and you know he's getting and Bender's grilling him for that. So I love that scene because it's such a great, it's comedic and some of the timing is really funny and kind of on the nose and and cute, but just in what they bring and their reactions to each other is such a such a clever way of just developing the characters and showing that what each of them is like. You yeah. Know, and love, you're absolutely right. It's, it. it's, it's good character development. So good. Yeah. Without m- many words said, what do you think? Let me ask you a couple questions. What yeah, do you sure. think of, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I'm curious about this because it's kind of the, it's kind of the, the entire movie kind of circulates, circulates around this particular decision. Like what do you make of the initial defensive bender? Like when they could have ratted Bender out fifteen minutes into the movie, twenty minutes into the movie, but they don't. I think. That's what do you really... make of that? Like, what what was it about that situation? Why didn't they just rat him out? Right. Why didn't they just say it's him? Yeah, he did it. Like, what do they care? It's so. It's such a good question, Kyle. I don't know if I ever thought about it in those terms, but when you first brought it up a little earlier, I was thinking, this movie, which actually has a very sad, some, some very sad intonations for me, because it speaks of, I think the timeless and sort of inevitable caste system that we have in society. I don't mean to get too heavy about it, but it, this movie always struck me this way. Sort of the hierarchy that we paint each other in, even as kids, and sort of that timeless, unfortunately, in, in many ways, timeless sort of high school experience with the way we're generalized and grouped and sort of put into this sort of this caste system. And I think this movie sort of discusses and sort of shows how that could change. Now here's five kids, right? They're in high school. Maybe they've come up, let's say they've come up together all through grade school and they're in high school. They're rubbing shoulders in the hallways. Their lockers are next to each other in the hall. They're in some of the same classes, but they're so because of the way it is and the nature of us as people, I guess, and the nature of high school in particular, they're sort of strangers they're sort of these common strangers to each other. And the only way they ever develop some empathy for one another and come together and sort of rub elbows and are put together is that they're forced together in this detention 
And that's the only way they come to some, you know, to be familiar with each other and to understand each other and to take the time to realize that, you know, they're all people and they're all, you know, and really took the time to know each other through this thing. So I think in the spirit of that and sort of the camaraderie that's developing, and it's sort of an uneasy alliance at first, as we know, with Bender and Claire and everybody sort of infighting and everything like that. But they sort of form this uneasy alliance just because they're thrown together in this detention situation. And I think them defending Bender is just sort of an extension of that. It's sort of what's happening. If if they were in their, you know, a typical Thursday English class and that happened, I'm sure they wouldn't rush to Bender's defense. But since they sort of developed this uncommon empathy because of this situation, that them, them defending Bender is sort of an extension of that. That's how I, that's how I would paint it. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think, well, my, mo- my most simple answer is that they have to do that because otherwise there's no movie. <laughs> but, but apart from, I don't, I, don't, I don't think the answer is that simple. I think you're right. I think that it's, it's you don't want to be a rat. Uh, that's, you know, again, not something that only criminals look down upon. It's no. Like anyone, you know, you, you could be very, you can be cast very easily in a way you don't want to be cast if you, if you go down that road. So I understand. It's a great point, people, too. Yeah, so you don't want to necessarily do that. And I, I think that it shows an interest in another person that like it's almost a, there's almost a humanity to it the disappointing thing about it is that bender doesn't really seem to get it or reciprocate it at least initially bender softens a lot towards the end of the movie but when everyone really starts to get to know each other so that's kind of my take on it i, I, I think, like that take yeah I think um, that's a great take what do you make of the weed smoking scenes because this is a really i don't and you can give me a little more insight into this i don't associate weed in the 80s I associate Coke in the 80s. I'm not saying that these kids are going to have access to Coke, but weed doesn't really seem to be an 80s drug. Now, clearly it probably was, and you'll know more about that than I do, but I found it weird that they're smoke, just openly smoking weed in the library. It's just, it's the, and going back and watching it again for the first time in a few years, still love it, still hold it in the highest esteem that I did before. It's a little zanier than I remember in Uh, that regard. It's a little over the top. Yeah. Especially things like that. But dancing scenes. All that stuff. Right, exactly. What do you make of that? First of all, was was weed really that prevalent in the in Yeah, the I think so. I mean, we're talking about 84. The movie came out in 85. For me, my own personal experience, weed was around. I, now, let me paint this by saying I was a very straight-laced kid all through high school. I didn't have a drink in high school. I didn't have a cigarette. I didn't have a cup of coffee. I had nothing. Okay, all through. I think I had my first wine cooler when I was like 19. Okay, graduated from high school, virgin, the whole thing. Right. I was just not I was just on a whole nother thing with skateboarding and just being a nerd. Was I this mean, all real. of your friends like your closest comrades? No, I don't. It definitely wasn't all my friends. It definitely wasn't all my friends. I think I was particularly straight laced, you know, it, not that what the kids would call straight edge. Yeah, but it wasn't even that then because straight edge kind of came to be in the early to mid 90s. And I graduated from high school in 92. Right. So this was even pre before straight edge was at least a mainstream known thing with the X's and all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't a goody-goody about it. It just wasn't on my radar. You know, I was very hung up on what I wanted to do with skateboarding, playing video games, anime, drawing, whatever. I was just, you know, I was just, that was just my thing. You know, I was just on that trajectory. (laughs) But for weed specifically, that was for me and my experience of, of course, how old I am and how I grew up, the metalhead kids, as they even painted themselves, 
you know, we're talking about the denim jacket, mm. the long hair, the Iron Maiden patches, whatever. You don't want to stereotype, but this is what these sure. kids were. Yeah, absolutely. And I was friends with a lot of them as well. Weed was the thing with that then. It wasn't even, at least in my circles and from my experience, it wasn't even associated with rap music, hip hop at that time, or anything like that necessarily. It was really that. It was like the Metallica, Iron Maiden, you know, Guar. It was sort of associated with that mu- the, those kids and that music, Slayer and all that kind of stuff. Later, maybe a little more with skateboarding and then later a little more with hip hop. But that's how it was really equated back then. Even in junior high school parties when I was like in seventh grade, eighth grade and the house party thing started to kind of jump off and become part of our lives. Like that was, there was, pot was there, you know. I It definitely wasn't to the degree. I saw pot, now, th- and this might also be a difference for me, not to go too wide outside on this topic, but growing up in the suburbs of Long Island, and then going to Philly, a major metropolitan area for college, that's when weed started to become a big thing for me and sort of became very visible. But that also could have came with just being in the city and not being in the suburbs where it was harder to get and it was you know, more sparsely populated and all that kind of stuff. And I think in the film, I think that's where... Well, first of all, John Hughes' movies are interesting to me because they have sort of a... I don't want to say a Hollywood gloss, but sort of an 80s fiction gloss to them. They feel a little bit unreal, but at the same time feel real and tangible. They have the, they sort of cross that line between being entertaining and being familiar. Not just not just this film, but I think all his films have that quality, which make it feel like a little bit fantasy, but a little bit reality. I love that. And But I think with this movie, with Breakfast Club, I think this is where the film sort of takes a departure into fantasy with the weed and the library. And you just think about it in your own personal context. At least I do going to Belport high school in the late eighties and early nineties. I mean, I would get detention for wearing my pants too low. Like if I was smoking weed in the school, I would get expelled. Right. Right. I mean, this period, the end. Yeah. It's a very pungent sort of thing. It just, you know, it always, it always, uh, by the way, just to clarify something you said earlier. Yeah. You said that when you moved to Philly, weed became a big thing for you. You you mean that it became visible. You really weren't a smoker. No. So I want to just clarify because if people are going to interpret that as that's when you became. Sorry, sorry, oh, sorry. oh, yeah. No, no, never. I could Not that you should prob- be ashamed of that, but you only smoked, you've only smoked a handful of times in your life. I would say I could probably count the times I smoked on two hands, you know? Yeah. So, so I just wanted to clear that. Yeah. Up, they, just in thanks. case. Not a pothead. No. Not, not like that me. there's anything wrong with that. No, I hope not, because you're looking, you're looking at one. <laughs> I was making you laugh before because I was telling you about this guy in Santa Monica, that asked, like this street kid that asked me for a, a drag of my joint when I was walking down the street one day when I was smoking. And and I, I, I told you, I was like, I've been smoking weed since before you were born. <laughs> Fuck away from me. Which is true. Yeah, it is true. Sadly, it is true. <laughs> I lost my pot virginity at the, the Taco Bell parking lot on 112 on Long Island. Nice. In 11th I know grade. the spot. And uh, oh, 11th grade, I was with my friend Chris and his older cousin, and they handed me a blunt, and I couldn't stop coughing. And they got super mad at me because I was like giving them away, <gasps> you know, stop coughing. Like, you never that's smoked anything like this in my life. First, they give me a blunt, I can't even smoke a 11th bowl. grade is a reasonable age, though, that's to experiment. I think that's when I lost my virginity, that's when I smoked weed for the first time. Okay, yeah, it's a good year for you. Also, my best academic year. Look at that, yeah, how dare I don't, I've never had a bad academic year. But. No, you did well. To be, in high to be perfect I wanted there. to talk to you about that. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I think I graduated with like over. I mean, not great. I mean, like a three point three or three point four or something. Like that. So not not great. I could have. I had a bad tenth. Tenth grade was pretty rough. 
<laughs> brought your average down. Yeah, I, I think my I think I was like in the mid twos in tenth grade. I just didn't give wow, a fine. Tenth grade was so. Yeah. Tenth grade is tough. We should do a whole episode on our high school experiences because I think that definitely would be really that would be hilarious. So I'll save it for that. All right, cool. I already gave you the story about how I got the shit beat out of me, but we'll save the others. <laughs> yeah, the we. So that's interesting. That's interesting insight. And actually, per what you were saying about the metalheads, I mean, I it, you would assume Bender listened to Slayer and stuff like that, just but on the way, you know, the, or Metallica. The I way I think he that's yeah. Gen- he's a more generic, I guess, because you can't paint him and you know you can't use those names and things like that maybe in a movie but that's what he would be a more generic version of somebody that would listen to that type of music and you know that sort of thing he's that sort of paradigm there's a really weird scene during that with andy clark in the when he's listening to to records in an office and he's like smoke it's so weird i'm like he's boxed out oh yes yes i'm like where are the adults this office (laughs) is boxed out where is it's not even like he's just smoking a little bit in there it's like it's like my favorite scene in Fast Times when they're the van pulls up and they and they and the van opens and the smoke they, up, they fall, fall out, out of the van. It's they the, just all fall the out. fucking best. I love that. I love comparing this movie to Fast Times because I think it feels these two movies I I think of in in tandem. Well, Fast Times we can we'll do an episode on Fast Times, but the because I love that movie and Great that was idea. the last time I ever dropped, dressed up for Halloween. I was Spicoli. You did the whole thing? Yeah, I was. With the bagel in the pants yes. and everything? Yes. Oh, that's exactly what I did. That's brilliant. I was, an, I was a senior in college. Because I remember talking to you about that, yeah. but I don't remember if you ever went through it. Yeah, I had like, you know, the, the wig and like, you know, the, the board shorts and like a <laughs> bagel in my, my bagel pants. bagel stuck yeah. into the front of his pants. <laughs> so good. Oh, what do you order pizza, Mr. Hand? Very similar thing though, right? Cameron yeah. Crowe with his writing background yep. and John Hughes with his writing background and sort of what they bring to it and the, sort of the... And also a West Coast flavor to, to Fast Times. It gives mm. you a West Coast perspective. It definitely does. Strangely, Encino Man, which is not a well, you know, esteemed movie, but a fine movie. Never seen it. It's it takes, it, it, it's with Paulie Shore and oh, that's right. Yeah. I think um, one of the dudes from The Hobbit or one of the dudes from The Lord of the Rings. Oh, really? oh no, 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 Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser. Yeah, yeah. not in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, <laughs> Decidedly not. No, his friend is though. His in, friend, his friend, his buddy in it, it, like one of the minor characters, is one of the one of the, one Hobbits? Of the Hobbits. Oh, but uh. Yeah, it, that that movie not obviously as esteemed as what we're talking about now, but that was always when I was a kid. I was like, that's what it go, that's what it's like going to college or high school in in California. They had like these open corridors, like the buildings were all separate. It was sunny and it was like a campus. Like I saw this footage of Green Day playing in in San Francisco or in, in the Bay Area in like the late '80s. I was on YouTube and they're playing at like an, an open air high school like that. And I'm like, this is so wild. And that so that gave that perspective, and then this gave kind of the more Midwestern perspective, and then you have there other you ones that give like the more New York perspective, I guess. But yeah, I always found the, the weed scene kind of peculiar. Yeah, to say the very least, it's pushing it. Now, we would be loath, and I can't believe we. I'm looking at the time where we've been going for almost 90 minutes. Oh, wow. I can't believe that we've not brought up the soundtrack yet, which oh. is exceptional. Seminal. There, there are two. There are two songs in particular that I think stand out on the soundtrack. One of them's obvious. One of them I think might be less obvious, but we should probably talk about "Simple Minds" and "Don't You Forget About Me," which is the song that plays at the very beginning of the movie. And what I was reading about this, Billy Idol turned this song down. This was something that was given to Simple Minds. So I always thought that Simple Minds was like, uh, they kind of a one hit wonder, but they came up with this. They saw the following. They, they existed before and after this. So I'm not trying to insult them, but that they came up with this movie or this song. It was found by John Hughes or whatever. And they, but that's not it at all. I did not even know that. And, you know, the iconic 80s song. One of the great 80s songs. It's such a good song, and I defy you to think of that song without this movie and vice versa. No, it's, it's impossible. Impossible. You can't. You can't. Completely impossible. It. And 
during that, that's when the David Bowie quote shows up on the screen and in the beginning. And that was Ali Sheedy's idea, apparently, to yeah, put that in there. Yeah, I read that. She, yeah, she talks about how she brought it up to John Hughes, like kind of, not flippantly, but just kind of in passing. Never heard another word about it than when they went to screen the movie. He used it was it. there, yeah. It's amazing. So pretty cool. But uh, <laughs> what is it about that song? Can we even talk about it? I, I think there's something so somber about that song. Yeah. It's almost a breakup song. I agree. And I mean, it clearly is a breakup song in a way. What is it about it? Like, is it is does it add gravitas to the movie? Is I it just because so. it's the 80s? What, what do you think? I think so. I think that's very, very well said. I think it's a, and I think it's a great point, Kyle. I think that first this movie does have a somber and sort of melancholy resonance for me. It always has. And I think not only is this song very, very indicative of the way music sounded especially the good music sounded in the mid 80s but it also really does it really does reflect tonally i think the tone for me of what the movie feels like and i think that's just simply simply said i think that's that it it really this song feels like the music version of this movie you know to me absolutely if you if you're somehow listening to this this deep and you haven't seen this movie yet i don't know what you're thinking but if you've not heard this song you should listen to it spoiler alert yeah spoiler alert we just spoiled the whole movie for you (laughs) 90 minutes 90 minutes in you might want to turn it off and go watch the movie the the the, the podcast is now longer than the movie (laughs) the other song that i want to bring up i mean there are a lot of good songs in here but the other song that i think would be worth bringing up is one you and i were talking about before which actually is also my favorite scene in the movie which is the fire uh, fire in the twilight by wang chung oh yeah this is when they're kind of sneaking through the halls and trying to get back to the library, kind of trying to outflank Prince, Vice Principal Vernon by getting back to the library before he goes, and the music kicks in. The ding, 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 ding. You know, like just like really suddenly. I love the way it's so great. That mo- that song frustrates me in a way because they never go back to that amazing intro. Like that never is in the song again. Like that, oh, that awesome right. synth. Yeah, I always hate when, and I say this as a musician when when they int- when songs introduce really compelling parts and they never return to them. Maybe it's like it's the not first enough. In the first chorus, but they never like really go back in. They never like, go back to yeah. that, and it sounds great. Right? Exactly. I never heard anyone talk about that sort of thing before. That's a great. That's a really great point. Frustrated shit. Like that's the whole. That's As like a musician, I, I can like hit enter on Spotify for the first ten seconds of that song like, over and over again. It's like <laughs> the best make part. Your own mix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like that. That part. That's anyway. I love that scene. Great iconic scene to them running around. Awesome, awesome scene. cinematography. Yeah, I didn't ask you too. your favorite scene. That, I think that would be it because the cinematography is really quite stunning. I don't think John Hughes. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know nearly enough about film to know the crew that he typically worked with. If he brought them with them, like with you know, yeah, it's a good, not really good question. Cinema, no one really talks about John Hughes in cinematography. No, but there's really cool shots where they're running around. Like Ali Sheedy's just standing there, and they're all running by her, and everyone's like a lot. Of, you tell they had fun with it and splice it together, and I feels like a music video a little bit exactly a little you know a little bit in there in the middle exactly now not to end things on a more somber note but we have to talk about the theme and the overarching theme i think in the movie which is parenting and specifically bad parents Mm. Mm. and i'm kind of curious what your takeaway is from am i am i right in in is my interpretation of the movie right that john hughes is trying to say that and i think this is a simplistic thing to say but i think that it kind of encapsulates what I'm trying, what I think, which is all parents are inherently not good. I mean, that's kind of like no matter how good you think you have it, no matter how good your situation is, no matter what your money is, no matter what. It's a, it, it's quite obvious in, in, in what he's trying to say, I think, in some sense. But I walk away from it being like every parent is deeply flawed because look at this this cross section of kids. Only really one of them, maybe ostensibly two of them should you know, come from broken homes or broken families, that being Ali Sheedy and Judd Nelson's characters. Otherwise, 
these kids have kind of been misled, abused, manipulated, whatever. What right. do you think of that? Do you think that that's the message? I, I think I'd never thought of it. I never thought of it that way. Now that you mention it that way, it's, it is very clever to paint a film that's on the surface about these kids and you're centering around these kids on screen. But what's really happening is you're making a statement about their parents who you barely see. I think that's very possible. I think that's a very, now that you bring that up and you put that in my head, I think that's a very possible, it's very sad, but it's very possible. And I love what you said, the part about, it doesn't matter the economic background, rich or poor, it doesn't matter what kind of kid you have, what they're into, you know, what you're, what you put the onus on, whether it's success of being an athlete, success of being an intellect, you know, having money, it doesn't matter, you know, and inherently. And also you could also draw that right through the all the adults in the movie, right through the principal and everything, the assistant principal and everything. So I, I never thought about that before. I think that's a really great point to put out there. You know, I, I definitely was thinking about the movie in different terms than that. Well, think about 16 Candles, right? Mm-hmm. Great movie. <laughs> it's about a family that forgets their kid's birthday. Right, and a milestone birthday. Right. That. And it seems like the theme, thematically, there's a through line between those films and the message that I almost feel like maybe you're getting an insight into John Hughes's childhood. It could definitely be, could definitely be, that could definitely be the, the intent, you know? No, I'm not saying everything's like that. Ferris, Ferris Bueller is also about absentee, absentee parents. parents. And yeah, I'm just looking at the list here. Let's see. Weird science really isn't pretty and pink really isn't they have good parents and right she has good parents and pretty or a so, father anyway so i'm not I, I don't i don't want to say that that's and obviously the national lampoons i mean they're about bad parents too <laughs> that's a whole different yeah thing. that's that's a whole t- different kind of bad parent but but hey so i i um, i like that through line you got this got into you just drilled your way into john hughes's psyche yeah a little bit i mean a little I bit i like it i i, I can't uh, i would be afraid uh you know i'm looking at my notes here just to make sure that we haven't skipped anything i guess the only other thing that i, I wanted to bring up yeah that just as, as as an aside, Nicolas Cage and John Cusack were both being thought of as for Bender. And I think John Cusack originally had the role for Bender and was removed. I could see him. I could see him for Bender, but he lacks. He's a little too. I don't want to say anything mean spirited, but soft. He, he's a, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to yeah, say. He's a little mean, too soft and he's a little bit too like squishy and just too like appealing. He just he didn't have a hard edge to him. Yeah, Nicolas Cage apparently they were thinking about for, to bring in like a name. Yeah, but at glad... that time he was a very respected actor. Right, right. And then you see all the footage of him in that Superman outfit. My God! And you forget all he about. He fell apart, that man. Nick Cage. Now, do I? Do we have time? Did I? I'm not interrupting you, am I? Well, I just was going to read a few more questions, but I'll read a to... couple of questions and then I'm going to ask you a couple. Quick oh, we'll do the quick fire after that and wrap it up. Is that well, what you want to do? I do want to do that also. Oh, so you have... So this is going to be the first three-hour episode of Parallel. I'm perfectly fine with that. I want to make sure that we don't ignore any of the Please, questions. Please, I love... I love just like, because this wraps things up, and they're, and they're kind of similar to each other. I Dave. love hearing these. And we, we really didn't talk too deeply about this. I think we kind of talked a little bit about it, but yeah. David Buffard says, which is your favorite character uh, and why? What, I was going to ask you this. Okay, so he Perfect. says his personally is Judd Nelson is John Bender, though Ali Sheedy is a close second as Allison Reynolds. Both were absolutely excellent in St. Elmo's Fire too, which I think was recorded the next year or two years later. Yeah. And we're both sense. more in line, especially specifically with with um, with Judd Nelson, more an adult movie. You know, Judd Nelson's playing, is punching way below his age weight in this and he's that's more good, of his age because they're more, they're point. college age, right, in St. Elmo's Fire. 
So yeah, maybe is it post college? Yeah, I think it's actually yeah. about them graduating. Graduating, yeah. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Great movie. Saint Elmo's Fire. Great soundtrack. Oh my goodness. Gonna be a man in motion. <laughs> All, right. All I need is a pair of wheels. <laughs> <laughs> it's like holy moly, he's getting fucking. I can only imagine being in that recording studio. <laughs> so who's your favorite character? I think I was thinking about this already, and I it would have been difficult for me because it was difficult for me initially thinking about this. But I have two answers. I really think the character that resonates the most with me is the basket case character, Allison. I like her a lot. And I can relate to that feeling of... Not that mom... I wasn't ignored by mom and dad. We, I had good parents. Our parents were divorced. My, Our parents got divorced when I was 17. But they were... They were they were always attentive parents and supportive and everything like that. Our dad did work a lot, but there was we I always had a good relationship with my parents. So it's not the parent thing. It's just the I think what um, speaks to me about that character is just that feeling of want, especially at that age, just wanting to stand out and wanting to have your own voice. And I don't even know that I said this earlier too. I don't know that it's necessarily just for attention. I think it's just trying to find who you are. And trying to, and knowing that you don't have to paint yourself as the jock or the, you know, or the brain or the princess. You, you There's other things that you could be. You could be a, a amalgamation of things. And I like that about that character. Now, I have a very big thing with high school. I won't get, we'll talk more about our, I think we should do an episode about high school. That would be great. But Specifically because we both went to the same high school. We went to the same high school. A decade apart. Right, and had very similar experiences, I'm sure, just with the genre of kids and the teachers and the administration. Some was some, you know, consistent across those lines, I think, too. But for me, also, I have a big regret about not doing better in high school academically. So I think I would want to, if I had a choice, I would want to go back and be the brain. It's something I think about a lot now. Of course, my I'm very blessed. My life worked out great. And I also always knew what I wanted to do since I was a kid. Like I was going to be in animation and that was the end of it. It was just going to happen from when I was five or six years old. And say what you want about me, but I am tenacious. That you are. So I knew that was going to happen, but I think I kind of rode that into, you know, sort of, sort of into the ground as far as like, I don't have to, you know, just skated by in school and got, you know, poor grade point average and I always I have this weird thing for right or for wrong of wanting to go back and seeing where I would have landed you know compared to who I graduated with compared to my class that I graduated with in 92 just see where I would have stood with them if I really applied myself I have a weird thing with that now it's not because I want to change who I am or change my career but I'm very content but just Something I feel that I missed and I can't go back and do again. Right. And I really try to instill in my kids, like, you don't even understand how important. Not not in a Brian, is it Clark? Not in a Brian Clark way. It's Brian Johnson. Johnson. Andy, Andy Clark. Andy Clark. Yep. But not in a Brian Johnson way, but in a way of, like, just do what you want to do because, you know, do, do your best in school and really shine academically and do 100% the best you can so you could... Because later on, you're going to decide what you want to do, and it may change a bunch of times. I was lucky. I always had that sort of, you know, laser, laser vision on what I wanted to do, but they may they may not. Sure. You know? Sure. So that was always a big thing for me. So I would say, yeah, it was the basket. It was Allison, and then if I had to choose who I would be to go back, it would be Brian. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. That's very interesting. 
Yeah. I often wonder too. Like, I don't know why I didn't apply myself more. Oh, I think a lot of people. Have yeah. That. I, 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 you know, I, I ended up at a great college, so I can't, I can't, you did. You I did. can't, I, but you did too. And look at you now. Yeah. And look at you now. Right. So you can't really cry over spilled milk, but right. I often wonder like why I didn't care more. I really yeah. didn't care. I mean, it, there, there was, and that was, that was, I think, as I said, most uh, encapsulated in 10th grade for me. Where I just was like, I don't really don't care about any of this. I don't. Tenth grade is that 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 definitely speaks to me. Yeah, tenth grade is tough. Man. Yeah, we should save it because we, we can have a great. We'll save that. We'll that. save that. Uh, for me, David Buffard, my favorite character. I, I I'm looking at the list here. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. I mean, I I think I would probably also say Anthony Michael Hall's Brian Johnson, just because I felt like he was the most relatable to me. I, I, again, you can say what you want about me, but I'm nice. I think I'm a kind guy. Yeah. And I, I, I feel that spirit in him. Misunderstood, hard on himself. I mean, I'm not quite quite as bad as him. But I, I would say, I, 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 the interesting thing, it's just like Seinfeld in a way where, the, you know, or Always Sunny in Philadelphia or one of these, where they're all necessary ingredients to the movie. Yeah, You can't really remove any of them. No, absolutely not. The final question I have, Dave, before we get into your stuff is, sure. uh, Ron Chastain says, who is your favorite Brat, Brat, uh, Brat Pack star? Mm. Doesn't necessarily have to be from this specific movie. Okay. Personally, I'm torn between Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, Anthony Michael Hall. I would say Anthony Michael Hall. But he, Molly Ringwald obviously is the symbol of the Brat Pack. Yeah. And she, Anthony Michael Hall sort of transcended John Hughes movies because he was just such a big 80s star. But for me, and I know we talked about it early in the show, it's Molly Ringwald. She's the icon for me of, and she's who uh, automatically who my mind thinks of when I think of these films. And I, 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 like, I like her. I think... I don't know, there might be something weird too with her that feels a little bit. I don't know. I can almost sense her. <laughs> I can almost sense. I don't know if it's torment or something. There's something like behind her eyes. Like you could see that she's not really satisfied. You could see that she's not really. I don't know. It, it adds a gravitas to me. I feel, just feel like I know her. It's strange. Because she definitely has that movie star quality at the same time. So she really resonates for me. Yeah, she's a she's a tricky one and a textured one, but I I like her. Sure. Now take it away. Yeah, I, that's all I have before our outro. So I wanted to ask you. Sure. How do you think this film takes place on a Saturday? Yes. We see the things that happen at the end with Bender and Claire, and also with Andy and Allison, sort of becoming an item which we didn't really get into oh that's right yeah we should talk about that we yeah. talk about that a little that bit that is weird know, allison gets her makeover did she or did she not sell out i know that's a big topic for people you know quote unquote sell out and how she kind of becomes an item with the jock character you know and sort of how the the brian character is relegated to like the third wheel the fifth wheel rather you know but to me the bigger issue in the movie is that we see what's happening with Bender and Claire at the end and stuff like that. But I think for me, what I really need to know, like what happens on Monday morning? Did these kids transcend the way life has been in for high school kids at the modern in the modern age and break this whole thing? Or are they going to go back as as the Brian character says to Claire, like. Is this going to go back to the way it's going to be Monday morning? What's it, your take on that? Well, she she overtly says that it will in the movie, which she I does. think is interesting. She yeah, she says they're all like sitting Indian style, I think, up like upstairs in the ornate library, and yeah, she says like that's just the nature. She almost is like a 
it's almost like evolutionary where she was she was saying like this is kind of the, the natural order this is the of, way it's gonna be it's, yeah and like and she's not strong enough to break it right because andy clark says like says that's you know basically that, that's fucked up and she's like you would do the same thing yeah to him you know you're so and conceited he's, claire he, right exactly and and sorry breaking scene right so it's yeah. so it really speaks to what this movie is for me it's hopeful it gives you hopefulness and hopelessness at the same time. It, it is. It, it, that's exactly right. I think, Dagan, because you can see the hope in Brian Johnson's character that he's like, I consider you guys friends. He yeah. says that. Yeah. And it is sad to know that like nothing, you know, and maybe it's a, maybe it's a commentary on that. Things don't change. That things do not change. It's not going to change. And, and is it? Yeah. And I really want to know, like you and I are older guys, especially me. I want, and my, my, my wife is a high school teacher. I'm in an area where it's a little different than where I grew up, but I really want to know if high school is this harsh anymore. Right. I really want on the whole, because you have inner city, you have suburbs, you have the country. There's a lot of different places, a lot of different economic backgrounds. So there's a lot of things to sort of throw in an average, but I really do want to know if it's like this anymore. I suspect that it's not this bad anymore. I think, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to speak out of term. You're going to get I, a little insight soon from your kids. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter's certainly getting there. She's not a teenager yet, but she's getting there. Yeah. She's going to go into sixth grade next year. Yeah. So, yep. she, yeah, she's getting there. She's getting and there. And obviously, uh, Graydon is going to be Graydon eventually will have a, have a different perspective. And right. he's a little younger. He's a few years younger but than Lilia. But, yeah. But it's it's interesting to me. I, and I think, I think part of me asking that question is part of me just my dreamer of just like wanting it to not be like that anymore you know not that my high school experience was terrible because it wasn't it wasn't but and i can't wait to do the high school episode i think it's gonna be a blast but um i really want to know that you know i really i don't know if we have like you know listeners that are that young but it would be interesting maybe even unless we do have we high do school have, kids we do have young high school kids listening to the show and and parents of high school kids as well not sure. only the high, so speak to that guys i'd love to you know yeah tweet at us you can always tweet at us let us know what's going on with absolutely. that absolutely yeah it's it's interesting i think the world has gotten bigger and the in, in high school in the analog days i think and just generally your life work whatever and analog days was just small and so i think that as the world got bigger in the digital age these walls i would like to think these walls crumbled i'd like to think that bullying is not as prevalent i'd like to think that clicky kind of situations are not as prevalent and i can speak from someone that graduated high school in 2002 that i i our school was you know bellport was clicky but i don't think it was necessary i mean maybe i didn't experience it but it wasn't exclusionary but that was pre-smartphone that was pre you know that was even pre-social media well now the kids are dealing with social media and that adds a whole nother dimension to it you know as well now kyle do you want to skip i got something here for you all right. Yeah. No. No. I want to do whatever you yeah, want. Yeah. We do. could skip the lightning rounds. So I thought we try something different. No. No. I. No. I. I. I want to do everything you want to do. Let's All do right, everything. Now, you want this to do. is a little feature. I. I'm calling running lines. Okay. We're gonna run the lines. Okay. Okay. Now, I want to speak to this a little bit. Give this a little background. Okay. Now, I don't know how many listeners know of. A lot of people will know. You did the voice. A voice. You did some voice acting for a certain. Well, you've done a lot of of stuff but you did specifically some voice acting for a certain animated series yes the kind of funny animated series which you animated which Which i created (laughs) and through that i found out how much of a wonderful voice actor you are you have a natural talent for it oh thank you that's very nice and a lot of people said that as the series unfolded and sort of progressed and a lot of people spoke to that so i thought we'd put your talents to work okay and i printed out a script from the breakfast the 
script from the Breakfast Club. Now, it must be an early script because now even the vice principal character is, is known as a teacher. Oh, okay. So this might be an early script. Okay. So I'm going to give you your copy. Okay. I'll hand that to you. All right. All right. Now turn to page four. Okay. And now I marked it for you. Okay. All right. And you are going to read the part of Vernon, as we know him, Assistant Principal Vernon. Okay. And I'm going to read all the other parts. Okay. And it's just a couple of pages, and you just do the best you can. And as the actors call this, we're running lines. Okay. Let's pretend we're rehearsing. Sure, sure. We're sure. rehearsing for the play version of The Breakfast Club. All right, okay. ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, you, you start. Well, well, here we are. I want to congratulate you for being on time. Excuse me, sir. I think there's been a mistake. I know it's detention, but um, I don't think I belong in here. It is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you're here, to ponder the error of your ways. And you may not talk. You will not move from these seats. And you will not sleep. All right, people, we're going to try a little something different today. <laughs> we are going to write an essay of no less than a thousand words describing to me who you think you are. Is this a test? And when I say essay, I mean essay. I do not mean a single word repeated a thousand times. Is that clear, Mr. Bender? Crystal. Good. Maybe you'll learn a little something about yourself. Maybe, maybe you'll even... I'm flubbing these lines. Maybe you'll even decide whether or not you care to return. You know, I can answer that right now, sir. That'd be no. No for me, because... Sit down, Johnson. Thank you, sir. My office is right across that hall. Any monkey business is ill-advised. Any questions? Yeah, I got a question. Does Barry Manilow know you raid his wardrobe? I'll give you the answer to that question, Mr. Bender, next Saturday. <laughs> next Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. Well done. And I did the thing he does. With it. Oh, nice. Yeah, you yeah. even did. The... Yeah. You guys couldn't well, see. He does. The he, hand does he goes like. He does. <laughs> I'm like rock on, dude. Very nice. Very nice. Well man. done. I, like, I enjoyed that. Very well done, sir. Flubbed a few lines. Running lines, my friend. Very fun. This Always may fun. be another feature in the, in the future. Who knows? Perfect. I love it. Keep adding on to the All show. Right. I like it. All right. So are we going to do the lightning round? Do you do want to do, do the lightning round? round? Let's do the lightning I have round. One. I have one planned. Let's do it. Okay. Of course. All it's right, a tradition. My friend. People seem to enjoy the lightning I round. I think so. Though. I enjoy okay. it. Okay. Here we go. Okay. No answer is incorrect. Until we find out it is. <laughs> okay. Here we go. High school in the... High school in the year 2000 or high school in 1984? 1984. I wish I saw it. Jocks or geeks? Geeks. Metalheads or punks? Metalheads. Detention or suspension? Suspension is pretty extreme. I would go with detention. Math or science? Science. English or social studies? Social studies. Oh, I thought that was going to be a harder one for you to decide. But I knew it was going to be social studies. I just thought you would debate it. Sure, sure. French or Spanish? Away. <laughs> Madame Gerard. We'll talk. We'll about talk her. extensively we'll about talk, her. Let's save her. Metal shop or wood shop? Did wood you, shop. I didn't take metal shop. Did you have shop in school still? Yeah, when you were there. Okay. No. Wood shop. You said. Okay. Aha or Wang Chung? Aha. Wang Chung's great, oh, but I like. I'm surprised. Aha. Okay. The Smiths or the Cure? The Smiths. Great, but again, I mean that's you got to go tough. with the Smiths. Yeah, I think so. Much more emotional. I agree. You're correct. Dodgeball or square dancing? Dodgeball. Square dancing was the my most feared week every like I didn't know when it was coming. It was awful. you'd walk in every Monday to gym and wonder what the unit was. 
It was so bad. It, like, why did they make us do it? And the funny For thing anxiety. about that, they would use, dude, in 2000, 2001, 2002, they were still using a record player to, to broadcast a, the music. That's amazing. Yes. That's correct. No, no joke. You are correct. Okay. Good. And Good also, uh, I have a tip for you high schools out there. Let's combine dodgeball and square dancing. That's a great idea. Let's see if we can do a hybrid of the two. <laughs> or you could be like when well, we did archery and the bad... Oh, that was my name. And the, and the, oh, you have an archery question? <laughs> what were you going to say? When the kids would shoot the arrows into the ceiling of the gym and they'd stay there for years and they'd randomly fall... Like over the years, they, that's insane. Did they really do that? Yeah, people would like shoot when they weren't looking or shoot an arrow because it was oh like foam in the ceiling, and it would just be there forever. First of all, I don't even know how archery was done at our school. It was dangerous enough. I mean, it's like when Larry, who's our stepdad, mom's husband, talks about how he had, sh- and you know, he went to high school in Brooklyn, and they would have they had a gun club in the basement. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable in high school. Yes, that's crazy. All right, let's go on to the next one. Dodgeball or archery? Dodgeball. I, I, I hated knocking my arrows, as they used to call it. <laughs> knocking your arrows. Were you good at it? Could you find? Could you yeah, shoot? I was fine at it. Yeah, it I used to, it's, it's hard. I scorched first. my arm a few times, but yeah. Yeah, with the yeah with the rope, with yeah. the string. House party or pool party? House party. I have some funny house party memories, for oh, sure. We got to save those. Yeah, definitely. That's going to be a good episode. Preppy gal or sporty gal? Preppy gal, but you can go both ways. Yeah, maybe even a combination. Sure, two. sure. Home ec or health class? Health class was comical, so I would go with health class. Health class was definitely comical. It was ridiculous. They're starting early. My Lily is my daughter's already starting, and she's in fifth. They're already doing it. It's I crazy. Guess it's, it's okay. I mean, you're gonna learn good. one way or the other. You might as well exactly teach them. Might as well be official, right? Yeah. Art or music? Music. Band or choir? Band. School play or prep pep rally? School play. Cheerleader or metal gal? Cheerleader. <laughs> Bag lunch or school lunch? School lunch. I love school lunch. I yeah, love school I lunch. I too. I loved like the McRib kind of thing they had. I love the chicken I nuggets. Like that I too. Lo- Dude, I used to get like, when they do chicken burgers, chicken patties, I used to get like three of them. Yeah, chicken patties were good. Dollar twenty-five each? Just give me three of them. I don't was care. cheese fries like a thing? Like no matter what lunch was, there was always cheese fries? I don't think so. No matter what that. they were serving? Oh, really? Yeah. They actually improved it by the time you got yeah, there. Yeah, they got they I didn't go to school in nineteen ninety one where they were <laughs> it they was didn't like, flying fuck about you. It was like here's cheese fries. <laughs> Pasta and cheese fries. Here's the Coke machine. <laughs> I remember it was a big deal in twelfth grade when they, they they would only turn the Coke machine on after school. Like it was unplugged. Oh really? And people would like crawl under pull it out and plug it in and get a Coke and then unplug <laughs> it again. People would do such trivial shit. It was so, so fun. We gotta amazing. say I, I gotta say That's it. That's so amazing. Uh wait, where did I leave off? Okay. A V squad or debate team? Debate team. Good, good answer. You're correct. Claire or Allison? Claire. Strawberry milk or chocolate milk? Chocolate milk. Biology or physics? Physics. Oh, Terrible in biology. Really? Yeah. It was like my worst science. Oh, really? It's pure memorization. It is, but it's just, it was, I liked chemistry the most probably. In, oh, you uh, did yeah, chemistry liked, in high school as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you had biology. Earth I had science, earth science, biology, bio, chemistry, and and, I t- and and yeah, my physics class was astronomy. So you weren't able to get ornithology into your science. I got ornithology <laughs> senior year as well with Mrs. Carpenter. Oh, you did have it. Oh, over. I sure did. Nice. And we and yes, we did stuff birds and do all sorts of weird <laughs> shit in <laughs> that class. Amazing. She was out of her mind. She was she was great. That was that was awesome. All right, one more. Advanced algebra or get hit by a speeding train. I get hit by a speeding train. You're I correct. could barely. I think I told this story on this show. Maybe I didn't. That I could barely pass tenth grade math and twelfth grade. Oh, it was so hard. I just don't have a brain for it. Well done. Well done on that lightning round, my friend. 
Thank you, Dagan. Uh, very good questions as usual. Thank you. I think I got more right than wrong. You're correct. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all out there for uh, listening to our episode of The Breakfast Club. Remember, again, that you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. You don't have to, but it gets you, depending on your level of support, you get exclusive podcasts every month, uh, ability to vote on two topics for this run. The two topics that you guys voted on that we're going to be doing this wave are the Nintendo GameCube and the Nolan Batman movies. So those are selected by patrons. So thank you for that. $5 level, you get early access, a week early access to every episode of Knockback and Fireside Chats and other perks. $10 a month, you get all of those plus Q&A access. And, and we're doing a lot of things over there on Patreon. So I appreciate your support there. And remember, again, what I said at the beginning, I'm going to be annoying about this, but it would really help us if you you know subscribe to the show on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever left us nice reviews and stuff like that it just helps helps us algorithmically and we do appreciate that find a bigger audience although the show is growing it can always grow more and and we're happy to help facilitate that and hopefully you are as well so Dagan thank you for your time we got you again next Saturday yes very good thank you vice <laughs> thank you vice principal Vernon and uh, thank you all out there for your time attention love kindness support see you next time bye oh and sorry if you hear that croaking toad in the background by the way <laughs> can you hear that <laughs> he's our new mascot Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan supported over at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand the following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity Harshiv Bahia, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, John Burry, Alex Cabrera, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancado, Matthew Canoy, Shermer Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Dan Clifford, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Del Nikos, Mitchell Durkash, Luke Drake, David Ellis, Eric Finkenbeiner, Michael Fiore, Connor Gazian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Daniel Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Richard Green, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Wyatt Henry, Andrew Hess, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Jeremy Key, Nathaniel Khalil, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lewin Ray Loper, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, John McManus, Joe McPartland, Mike Menzel, Albert Miranda, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Adam O., Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius Scarzen Peterson, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Jordan Ray, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ryan Robertson, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Mike Shaw, Rayanne Scheinabarger, Toby Schutman, German Sadu, Jordan Smith, Riley Smith, Alexander Suarez, Ahmad Tamar, Tam Tran, Kevin Van Eekren, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Chris Wong, Michael Wells, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Super Shot ST, Casual Misfits Gaming, Mad Mock Media, Beric, Mubarak, Dav9834, Chris, Doc2015, and Random Guy Radio.